VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, May the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, David Williams. He's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. Well, it's bleary-eyed time of year for us hockey fans staying up late to watch the games, but loving it. Congratulations to Austin Mercer and the Devils. After dropping the first two games at home to the New York Rangers, they win in Game 7, a shutout 4 nothing victory. So off they go to play against Carolina. And we will indeed have a new Stanley Cup champion this year after Newhook and the Avalanche get bounced by the Seattle Kraken, which kind of came out of nowhere for me. And, you know, I'm the furthest thing from a Leafs fan, but this year's sort of strange in my own head. I don't find myself cheering against the Leafs. I'm kind of hoping they have a good run here in the playoffs. So it took almost a couple of decades for them to get out of the first round, and they did it. So good for them. You can hear the cheers all the way from Toronto. And I guess in addition to getting that gorilla off their back, there was a huge sigh of relief on top of the jubilation felt by Leafs fans. But off they go, and... <laughs> who knows? They get Florida, who, of course, bounced Boston in the first round as well. And a couple of Canadian teams still alive. There's lots of thought out there that there's the possibility, and there obviously is a possibility, for the Edmonton Oilers to meet the Toronto Maple Leafs in the Stanley Cup final. The Oilers were one of the faves going in, and now after the results of the first round, as much as I'm frustrated by the relentless battering of betting ads on uh, sports broadcasts, Toronto's actually the odds-on favorite to win the Stanley Cup now, so pretty wild. All right, speaking of hockey players. You know, we talk about long-term care and personal care homes and what have you, and some of the issues that need to be understood, better understood, and resolved, hopefully, whether it be the number of vacant beds, and then, of course, the staffing issue, and then issues regarding safety and violence and all the rest, and it, they are important. They're very traumatic issues to broach, but we need to. But this one is a touching story. And this is about the newfound love, and proves you're never too old to fall in love, between George Faulkner and Barbara Paddock. So they both live in the Hollett Retirement Center in Grand Falls, Windsor. So it all came upon so innocently. Miss Paddock was returning to her room after breakfast, going around a blind corner. Neither were watching, and George Faulkner bumps into Brenda Paddock, or Barbara Paddock, pardon me, man. And so they both sat there or stood there silently for a few moments until Mr. Faulkner said, let me give you a hug. And Miss Paddock says she's been dying for a hug, and she would have hugged a bear if the bear had to be there. And so they fall in love. Miss Paddock was off into the uh, uh, washroom, and Mr. Faulkner was waiting for her to come out, got down on one knee, albeit an old buckled-up knee given his uh, years as a hockey player. So he said he couldn't get back up, but he went down on his one knee to propose. She wasn't expecting it, and then goes on to find out who George Faulkner is and says, I'm not a sporting person. I don't know anything about hockey. We come from two different worlds. But it goes to show you on a couple of fronts. You're never too old to fall in love. And it doesn't matter about your knowledge of each other's favorite things to do in this world. Opportunity to learn a little bit about what the other person likes or loves. So it's just a tremendous story. As I read all the difficult stories, that one brought a big smile to my face this morning. So congratulations to you both. and. Many happy years ahead, we hope. 
Okay, so been a lot of road work announcements, right? Of course, the quote-unquote unprecedented amount of money that the province is going to spend on highway work uh, this paving season. And now a cost share about added divided highway. Okay, so each side of the government, the federal and the provincial government, are going to spend about $153 million on this project. So it's going to cover some approximate 55 kilometers. So what they're going to do is extend the divided highway, which right now ends just shy of Whitburn. They're going to extend it approximately 60 kilometers west of St. John's. That brings it all the way out to about Little Harbor East. Okay. No, the divided section is going to be uh, an additional 40 kilometers, pardon me. So they're also talking about adding a 15-kilometer divided section between Grand Falls, Windsor, and Bishop's Falls. Going to have the new culverts and higher capacity interchanges. There's going to be uh, a passing lane uh, about 15 kilometers out of Port of Basque. Costs about $20 million. And if you've ever gotten off the ferry and get behind some of the transport trucks, it can be slower going as we make our way across the island. So that'll be welcomed in many corners. Okay. It does really feel like there's been a lot of action. Of course, there's a lot of issues that government is having to deal with. But some of the announcements that really speak to what people uh, care about and the issues that they see right in front of them or they drive over every day, like road work, even though when we talk about education and healthcare and everything else under the sun, sometimes it becomes a bit of an eye roller talking about potholes, but it's a real part of our everyday life. I've got this funny feeling that there's an election coming. You know, a couple of reasons why. Not only the big announcements, but also now that the courts have settled, that the court date will be set for next year, I think it's late February into March, about the want for an individual citizen and then two uh, candidates who lost, Alison Coughlin and Jim Lester, they'll have their day in the court to talk about the legality of our most recent provincial election, which of course was plagued with a number of very serious issues. So... I just got this feeling, and it's not based on anything other than just following the news and looking at these announcements and reading between the lines, but you got the feel that the provincial liberals would like to get another election out of their belt, if they think they have a chance to win, get that out of the way before there's a court case that may bring into question legally as to whether or not the last election should stand, results to be thrown out, and then forced back to the polls. So I don't know, and I'm just surmising or opining, but that's part of what we do here, but all in all, when you put it all together, it just kind of feels like there's something else on the go. All right, and talk about leaving Port of Basque after you came off the ferry. The marine Atlantic story has not gone away. So this is about the fuel surcharge in particular. They talk about it in the air of transparency. It'll kick in on the 1st of June. It will indeed have a Potential negative impact on a variety of fronts. Maybe a potential tourist looks at the cost as, nah. Whether it be the cost of goods that are brought across via Marine Atlantic, which absolutely will have an impact on all of us. There's a lot to this. Like, the cost recovery model is severely broken. Now, the pro- pardon me, the Premier has gone to the Federal Transport Minister, Lagbra, voicing his displeasure with this pending announcement, a pending hike in the fares, and fair enough, we've got to fight the good fight on this one. Whether or not anything changes, I don't know. The fuel surcharge, though, has a tricky history. So it's about 15 years ago, if I remember correctly, that Marine Atlantic was allowed to charge a fuel surcharge if their expenditures on fuel, I think the number was $22.5 million. If it was extended beyond that, they had the ability to impose an additional fuel surcharge. The problem with that is that in years where they did not spend that amount of money, we didn't necessarily see any rollback of any fuel surcharge or any softening of the fares. So we can talk about the whole Marine Atlantic issue if you're so inclined. And something 
that's gone by the wayside as well because everything we touch is so bloody expensive is now we know, based on some Transport Canada rules, about the inability for cargo to be appropriately screened in Argentia. Consequently, it's got to be steamed back. I think the uh, closest next place for this said screening is in Halifax. So, of course, that comes with an additional cost. And who's going to bear the brunt of that? Me and you. So, lost in the conversation about some of the Marine Atlantic issues and the ferry system, and yes, it's our constitutional highway, we need a full rejig, re-examination about how that works, and then add into it the Argentia screening issue, and look out. And in the envelope or the realm of it came out of nowhere is now conversation again about the St. John's Harbor fence. And I know if you don't live in town, you probably couldn't care less about this issue. About a decade ago, it was recommended to City Council that they spend some $425,000 on this fence. You know, all the concept of it's a working port and it has to be protected from pedestrians being where they shouldn't be. Now in other places, notably they point to Halifax, they have figured it out much nicer than we have. So now, again, out of absolutely nowhere, the Premier has gone to the federal government to talk about it. The feds point back to the St. John's Port Authority, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, it is ugly. And I don't know how necessary it would be. Now, in some working areas of the port, whether or not there was the ability to have uh, east, west, north, south restrictions that are mobile and can be removed after the work is done for the day, maybe that could be manageable insofar as liability concerns. But now, all of a sudden, the Harbor fence? Okay. All right, sticking with the water. So apparently an update coming today, if I heard Brian Madour correctly during the VOCM News, at 11 a.m., the Association for Seafood Producers will speak to the media, and I guess the general public, about where we are. It really feels like the 11th hour for there be any snow crab fishery this year, and you all know the numbers. The price setting panel set it at 220 a pound. The FFAW went 350. It's gone from there to talking about how we set prices and outside buyers and all the rest. But I have been overwhelmed with the number of emails now talking about, well, it's fine to spend money on highways, it's fine to spend money on X, Y, and Z, but what about the fish harvesters? And I guess the assertion is, is that government should play a role in topping up the price? I think that's what people are getting at at this moment. Whether or not that sets us up uh, insofar as a precedent of different species, different fisheries throughout the year, whether one side or another is displeased with price and going back to the governmental well for a top-up, but anyway... That's where they are on that particular front. And ASP, very recently, I said, they're unwilling to renegotiate a price. That's it. You fish for 220 or you don't. But I am impressed with the solidarity amongst the harvesters. Now, I don't think everybody's on the same page. Given some of the vitriol and commentary offered on one of the Facebook groups, but they haven't gone for it. So for folks who are thinking, I've got the math worked out where at 220 I can still make a buck and I want to go, and they're not going to, or they haven't up to this point, because of some of the potential backlash upon steaming back into port. But, you know, the solidarity is impressive. Whether or not it's going to change the water on the beans remains to be seen, but here we go. And while I was away... Treasury Board has struck a tentative agreement with PSAC, and that covers more than 120,000 federal government workers. Interesting, to say the least. Okay, it comes with a price tag that's estimated to be around $1.3 billion per year. Treasury Board says that's less than half the cost of PSAC's original demands. The pay raise uh, sits at about 12.6% 
compounded over four years and a one-time pensionable lump sum payment of $2,500. Okay, so they figured that they had reached the end of the road in negotiations. They couldn't get any more from Treasury Board, so they decided to accept this offer and put it out to their rank and file for a ratification vote. A couple of the other areas that I think are really going to be fascinating to watch and see how they unfold is remote work. You all know the deal. They were mandated to come back to the office for two or three days in January. A final schedule uh, would be broached in March, and we all saw where it went. You know, we're dealing with a new reality regarding remote work and your opinion as to whether or not that should be allowed or not. Let's talk about it. But PSAC said they needed it enshrined in this collective bargaining about remote work, and that has not been achieved. Where they say they've got a win is that it can't be a one-size-fits-all. It's got to be on a case-by-case uh, individual basis for whether or not someone is going to be uh, told, yes, you can work at home for how many days a week or whatever the case may be. So both sides claiming victory on that one. And then I think what's going to become extremely contentious, and again, no one's cheering for anyone to lose their job, but... When the government hired as many people as they did to be part of some of the pandemic-related programs, of course, with most of those gone by the wayside, then I think it begs the question how many people need to be on the public payroll. On top of that, Treasury Board wants the ability to evaluate who stays on the job and who doesn't, not based on seniority, which has long been a hallmark of organized labor. They want to do it on, based on merit. So it's been a long-running debate inside the world of organized labor as to whether or not meritocracy should play more of a role, but they're going to deal with that in another standalone committee that will make a recommendation. But so remote work and seniority issue, not fully evaluated. You know, government seems to, you know, with a proposal for about a 3% hike per year, that we were talking about 9% over 3, so they're pretty close to the, the want of 3, but now it's extended over the course of 4, and they have brought it forward to 2024 versus simply this year, but you want to take it on? Let's do exactly that. All right, just a sort of a curious, and we've seen this story happen in other places regarding the number of people who are homeless, and there's so many different issues to talk about when we talk about housing, access and cost, affordability, you know all of those stories. And we have heard many, many times the story regarding homelessness and the transient population in Happy Valley Goose Bay, and the numbers are way, way up. So they've identified some places that have been problematic. And consequently, they've taken this decision about trying to deal with issues of congregating or loitering or drinking on certain sites, whether it be on the bike trail or at the USAF monument. They're taking away the park benches. So, you know, when we talk about homelessness and enforcement, look, people need to feel safe in their community. No doubt about it. Of course, it's paramount. But we're not doing a whole lot in dealing with some, we're not only root cause issues, but putting more affordable housing in place. When councils decide to take this approach. Now, Mayor George Andrews says they didn't take it lightly, but it's all about public safety. So you think about other places that have either had seen their park benches removed or what has been a go-to mechanism is putting in an additional iron ring in the middle of the bench so you couldn't lie down. So that's, you know, when we talk about homelessness, <laughs> really feels like we've missed a lot of other issues when we go all the way to just taking out a park bench. Does that mean they're not going to congregate in those areas? Probably not. Uh, they probably will continue to congregate is what I mean by that. But uh, anyway, that's one where I think we'll have to talk about it a bit more. Uh, a couple of quickies up in Ottawa. 
So we all know the stories regarding the allegations of foreign meddling in the 2019 and 2021 election. The Prime Minister had been briefed at least six times on the issue. And now it's in the hands of the special rapporteur, David Johnston, is about what next steps will look like. His report is due on the 23rd of this month. And the government says they will indeed follow through with all recommendations, including a public inquiry, if that's what Mr. Johnson thinks needs to happen. And it probably does, given where we are. Factor in other things like the Chinese police stations and some 11 candidates that were supported either financially or by campaign workers who were representing the Communist Party of China. Then there's this one story of a Chinese diplomat who has been taunting and threatening Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Chong, and he remains in the country. I just cannot wrap my mind around how the federal liberals have chosen to handle this. Whether it be the foolish filibuster that took place in committee before all of a sudden the Prime Minister Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, did indeed testify. And I don't know how much we gleaned from it, so she seemed pretty prepared, although unwilling to answer all questions. Of course, national security has to be a consideration. So they're just playing this so bizarrely. Are there some questions about the veracity of some of the leaks? Okay. Are there some questions as to how the special rapporteur can handle his business, in this case, Mr. Johnson, the former governor general? But when we have seemingly well-documented and accurate information about this one particular Chinese diplomat and their behavior, what's the holdup? What are we talking about? What's going on here? But there's a lot to that story, and let's take it on. It's Mental Health Week here in the country, and it's been happening by, held by the Canadian Mental Health Association every year since 1951. For the longest while, the conversations became so taboo that we didn't have them. So whether we talk about access to long-term mental health services or anything else under the sun, because it's hard for me to break it down any further than how you already think about mental health, mental illness, and mental wellness. But it is Mental Health Week. And to bring the conversations forward here publicly, which I know can be very difficult for some, I got a note this morning from a mother who lost her only son last week. He was 29 years of age. Had mental health-related issues and addictions issues. So, you know, when she shares her very personal story with me, I was always going to talk about Mental Health Week uh, today anyway, but keeping the conversation going is important. Whether we highlight the gaps, whether we talk about what the services have meant to you and your overall well-being, let's just keep them going. I'm not sure how else to couch it beyond that, but that story this morning, so I read the very... Very heartwarming, Mr. Faulkner and Miss Paddock's story, then to see that note, which I welcome because people need to tell us what's happening in their world and in their life. And so let's talk about it. And also a really interesting call, I will call it, de- or deem it, last week about the pending coronation of King Charles III, which happens on Saturday, May the 6th. There's a lot to it, and the popularity or the need for the monarchy in modern-day Canada I think makes for absolutely a fascinating conversation if you're so inclined, or maybe I'm alone on that one. And Canada's troubadour and poet laureate, Gordon Lightfoot, dead at the age of 84. Of course, you can say whatever you want. I mean, he was an international success and has a really fascinating background. But anyway, I saw a few interviews when he was on with Alan Thicke, 
on his TV show there years ago as a very, very young man. And just some of the thought process and some of the people that uh, idolized Gordon Lightfoot, some of the most famous singer-songwriters. I think, once again, I heard this out of the corner of my ear this morning about Bob Dylan and his adoration for Gordon Lightfoot. But yeah, there you go. And on a much more positive note, before we get to the news, congratulations, Rick Mercer. So he's going to get his star on Canada's Walk of Fame, which I think, of course, is quite obvious, and he deserves to be in that lauded stretch of sidewalk. So congratulations to Rick. I mean, of course, he's a household name, coast to coast to coast in the country, and just stands the reason that he would get his star. And he tells a story about getting off the subway and walking to work each and every day down that stretch of road and, you know, sweeping some of the debris or dust or grout off of Gordon Pinson's star. So pretty cool. Good for you, Rick. And then so Degrassi as a franchise is going to see their star. And also Connor McDavid. I mean, the very best hockey player in the world, and I think in the conversation, the best hockey players of all time. He'll get his star. He's 26 years old. So pretty cool. Congratulations to Rick in particular. And I've long wondered why we don't have something like that in this province. You know, a walk of fame, wherever, Water Street, wherever you think is the best place for it. And I don't know why we don't have a Newfoundland and Labrador Music Hall of Fame to celebrate the enormous talents and successes that we've had. We're on Twitter. Minor successes on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show when we come back that requires you in the queue and on the air. Do not go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go a little snow crab on three. Peter, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning again, Betty. Uh, it's Peter. And, uh, well, you know, just a uh, tie up for a uh, crab. You know, it's getting to be a bit much, really. Uh, I think it's time for uh, Harvard to look at uh, the other side of it, and the side, the other side that I'd look at is, uh, or I am looking at, is to go fishing. Uh, whatever the Irwin Barry report is today, you know, like, uh, you know, people, people got to go fish. You know, people uh, got business to run, and uh, they're not making no money, and it's time to go fish, like. In 3PS right now, a double soap got roughly a couple of hundred thousand pounds of crab to catch. That's roughly that when they put numbers on it, and a 220 a pound, you know, you're up 400,000 dollars. So, like, if a boat owner could take one third of that home, you know, he's not doing bad, uh, you know, in hard times. He, he needs more than that. He needs a lot more than that. But in hard times, and to put a band aid on a bad problem right now with markets and everything else, he he, need, he needs to uh, get up and go fish. Uh, whether you're a big boat on the on the northeast coast or a small boat, it doesn't matter. But anybody who traditionally fished this time and fished in April, in my opinion, should get ready and go fish. Go fishing numbers, come back in numbers. And the and the plant workers, they need work too, and they should be on the wharf supporting you when you get back to the wharf. And that's my opinion on that. Now, I'm hearing that every other day. But, you know, like, for to come out and say it publicly, not, I'm just not saying my own opinion, Patty. I'm saying the opinion of many. You know, like a lot of harvesters feel that they're being held hostage. And, you know, this is not going to fix the problem in the fishery when it comes to fish prices and all that kind of stuff. It's just a band-aid for this year for to go fishing and try to save your year. And, you know, like, if you can guess if you can get all your crab in. And if, you know, the trip limits are not so severe. But, you know, like, 
lot of boats get ahead of the other ones. Not ahead, I shouldn't say, but, you know, like going before fishing before the other ones. But now, like I said, you know, like, uh, and everybody else is saying, everybody going pretty well lead the one time. And what a state that's going to be. And Newfoundland got more crab, Patty, than it ever had in my party here, the land. So, you know, that's uh, that, that's uh, up on us, too. And, you know, we're, we're the world's largest, if not the largest, producer of snow crab. So, you know, like, uh, the rest of the problems, like uh, maritime stuff like that, they put a fair, uh, some crab into the market, no doubt about that. But Newfoundland puts in the largest amount. And, you know, like, uh, we're just going to have to suck it up and get on every day, you know, like, just, uh, just making the problem worse. If I could see... And the FFAW come out and explain how we're going to get more money when the market is not there. Gee whiz, I, I, I wouldn't be saying this this morning. But we're since March now with a declining market and uh, and no end in sight. You know, it just we just can't. It's not feasible to stay in and lose the whole season. Then you got another you got another nine months to wait for. Well, right now you got about ten months to wait for the next season. So I don't know if that makes any sense to you, listeners. But you know, like, uh, if you don't want to go fish, you know, I, I understand. But a lot of people supported this tie-up, but it's not getting better; it's getting worse. And like I said to the plant workers, if there's going to be trouble, well, you know, you're going to have to come out and support the fellows out that's going to give you some work on the wires. And that's not fishermen against fishermen. That's doing what's right. The, the solidarity is impressive as a concept, and they all remain tied up. But like I've said, and people get really quite cross with me, even though I don't have a dog in this fight or a horse in this race, I'm not a fisherman, is like if it was my enterprise and I thought I could make a buck, I want to go. You know, i got crew that depend on me. I've got some money I need to make. So I'm, I'm a little bit surprised because ultimately, Peter, I'm just a little bit confused as to what anybody thinks the tie-up can result in. Like if, it, if they thought that by tying up unilaterally that the association would cave or the problems would come to their rescue or like I don't even know what they thought might happen with the tie-up and I get what the FFAW are doing their responsibility here on this front although it's double-sided they got plant workers they represent who won't be getting their weeks but they want the harvesters to be able to maximize this very lucrative fishery but if the association isn't going to budge and people can say well this is you know reflective of the old merchant mentality told when you can fish and how much you can fish for I, I get that but I'm not really sure sure what they thought the end goal would be or the end opportunity to see a bigger price by just tying up. I, I just don't know. No, and the, there's, a, there's a, a vast majority out there now that wasn't there when this tie-up started that sees it your way and my way. And when you talk about solidarity, okay. you've got people right now, fish harvesters right now, and so they should be as far as they're concerned, they're official officers, so they're not tied up. Then you got people fishing shrimp. They're not tied up. You got people talking about now going at the scallop. So they won't be tied up. So and then you know, like the sea cucumbers comes on stream, well they'll be they'll be fishing them. So who who is bearing the brunt of this? You know, is it the fellow with a just crab only? You know, basically, you know, like uh, that's the fellow that's tied up. 
you know, so like, if it's AEW, they're going to tie up everybody. They should have, for solidarity, they should have tied up everybody. Or if not, you know, let it go as it is, you know, like, but right now, I think the FFAW and anybody right now is just holding the other the other fishermen hostage. So when fishermen look at people who want to go fish and hold, hold them hostage, well, then they should pick up for themselves and go fishing. That's all I got to say, Patty, and thanks for taking me, Carl. But I've analyzed this to date, and anybody that knows me out there over the years, I always was there and supported fishermen. And I supported everything like starting off, but right now, I think that you're going to have to suck it up. It's a bad year, and if we stay out any longer, tied on, you're going to make it worse. Thanks for taking me, Carl. Have a good day. You too, Peter. Take care. All the best. You too. Yeah, I mean, again, it's we're better served, whether it be with the association, and I'm you know, looking forward to hearing what they have to say at 11 o'clock this morning, and we will bring you the update as soon as it's available. Brian Madore is going to be in attendance at that particular presser. But on the harvesting side, if you are a harvester and remain tied up and think there's a win that comes as a result of the widespread top, just l- let us know and talk about your opinion and what you think can be a hopeful outcome because of this strategy chosen by the union. Happy to take it on. All right, let's go to line number four before we go to the break. Ed, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Patty, how are you doing this morning, bud? Not too bad at all. How about you? Not too bad, bud, not too bad. Uh, I was walking yesterday and I picked up a pair of uh, reading glasses on the side of the uh, uh, walkway there and it's at the Newfoundland uh, drive there. I picked them up I'll uh, just wait for the uh, owner to try to get them back. What part of Newfoundland Drive were you walking? Uh, there by the hospital there, uh, the old age home there. Okay, so way down in in Pleasantville area. Yes, yeah, yeah. All right, so picked up a pair of specs uh, down around the Pleasant View long-term care facility. If they're yours and you dropped them, give Ed or give us a shout. Ed, you want to give out your number? They'll just give us a call. We'll call you. Yeah, sure thing. Okay, uh, we'll do that. Now they're they're uh, blue pair, blue blue rims, right? So my number is seven five three two three zero nine. Okay. Okay, my friend, have a super day. You too, Ed. Thanks for this. Okay, thanks for minute. Take bye-bye. care. Bye bye. Blue rims, stylish. Let's take a break. When we come back, Marine Atlantic. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration and Population Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks very much, Patty, for having me on. Really, really appreciate it. Happy uh, to do it. Thought I'd uh, take an opportunity just to talk a little bit about the gravity uh, of the... Marine Atlantic uh, rate increase, the fuel surcharge uh, increase, and what it means to the economy in Newfoundland and Labrador. I, I get the sense, Patty, that the entire province has become very galvanized and very much aware of the consequence to each and every one of us when Marine Atlantic raises its fares. We've always been conscientious of it, but it seems like the entire province has now really kind of grappled this as priority number one uh, you know it's a very big issue it used to be priority number one for you as a member of parliament if i remember those days correctly okay just before we get into some of the nitty-gritty you know when you hear minister crocker talk about the potential for legal action based on this fuel surcharge hike legal action based on what i mean because a flawed system is not really you know meritorious for legal challenges necessarily so what's that concept based on so I'm glad you asked that. I have given two uh, pieces of advice, two causes of action 
to the Justice Minister and to the to my cabinet colleagues. One is misrepresentation. Uh, there is numerous cases on file where uh, companies have been, you know, taken to to court on misrepresentation, class action suits on misrepresentation about pricing. In fact, I believe there's currently Air Canada, I have to check the um, the specifics, but there was a court, a class action that was filed at uh, back in 2019 against Air Canada on misrepresentation of uh, fuel surcharges with the uh, with that uh, transportation company. I'm not sure exactly where that sits in the in the court docket at this point in time. But with that said, Marine Atlantic says that they are have they have a fuel surcharge. What has been exposed uh, in a very, very shadowy way is that Marine Atlantic fuel charge is not, does not simply offset the cost of fuel. Murray Hubman, the president and CEO of Marine Atlantic, has verified to me in writing that the fuel surcharge is not just to offset the price of fuel. It's also the money collected goes to general operational expenses of the corporation. So it is not a fuel surcharge in its classic sense. That, I think, is very challengeable. The second thing that I think is uh, applicable to a potential court action, to a cause of action, is the Constitution itself. Now, Patty, I'm not going to try to go too far down into the weeds on this one, but, you know, we have three clauses to Term 32, uh, our constitutional protection of our Gulf Ferry Service. Uh, Clause 1 states that we are entitled to a ferry service as traffic offers. Uh, And the second two terms, the next two terms, really don't get a whole lot of attention. They talk about the – it talks about – what can be charged on the ferry service. And the federal government and others think that those two clauses, the last two clauses, Section 32, 2, and 3, are inoperable because freight rate, railway freight legislation has been repealed, so therefore they're no longer applicable. I argue differently. What the Constitution says is that all legislation that affects the cost of freight moving in, out of, and within the maritime region shall be applicable to the island of Newfoundland and the Gulf Ferry. PEI has legislation in place, it's called the Straits Crossing uh, Act, that's, that limits, that sets a limit on the cost to users of moving passengers and freight between New Brunswick and PEI within the maritime region. We should be able to benefit from that requirement. So I think there's two causes of action here. One, I would allege there's a misrepresentation of what the fuel surcharge is and what it's collected for. The second thing that I would allege is that there has been a a breach of the Constitution in that Term 32.3 has not been properly uh, interpreted. There is existing legislation that caps the rates that can be charged on Marine Atlantic, and the federal government has just simply ignored that. Parliament has passed legislation that should be equally applicable to the island of Newfoundland. The fuel surcharge uh, historically is a bit of a strange bird, if I remember the issues uh, accurately. So when was first established the ability for Marine Atlantic to add an additional fuel surcharge? That is about 15 years old or thereabouts. And it all was based on a certain threshold that had to be met. And 
I think it was 22 and a half million or thereabouts. My question would be, is in years where they didn't have that expenditure on fuel that met that threshold, did we see the rollback as opposed to just waiting for it to, to exceed it and then adding additional surcharge? Because I'm not so sure we did. Very intuitive. We did not. In fact, uh, by my uh, back of the envelope calculation, which is pretty, pretty good, Marine Atlantic collected just over $60 million in excess of what it said it would be able or eligible to collect from us. So it collected a fuel surcharge when they felt, when their own rules said it was eligible to be collected. But they also collected a fuel surcharge when their own rules said it would not be eligible to be collected. And I say that because you're right on the money. Back in 2007, uh, fuel consumption on Marine Atlantic was going up, while fuel prices on Marine Atlantic were going up. That was the age of the era of the Joseph and Clara Smallwood and the uh, and the Caribou. Older boats, older engines, burnt more fuel, had more crossings. Since then, Patty, Marine Atlantic has scaled back the number of crossings annually on uh, on the Gulf by 600. There are 600 less crossings now. We've got bigger boats, and we've got boats with a little more fuel-efficient engines in them. So fuel consumption has actually gone down over the years. Intuitively, you could make the case. If someone were to say to me, Jerry, listen by, fuel prices are through the roof. You know they've got to have a, a fuel surcharge. I would normally say, yeah, I can see the point of that. But here is where it's counterintuitive. It's not whether or not the fuel price is very high. It's whether or not you're consuming a lot of fuel at a very high price. Marine Atlantic's fuel cost in, 20, in 2019, 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic, was lower than what it was in 2007, yet they were collecting $10 million annually in a fuel surcharge. It makes absolutely no sense. So this is where, Patty, the whole notion of transparency, not only should there be transparency from Transport Canada on a go-forward basis about what the fuel surcharge is supposed to be all about, but Transport Canada should should be forced, should be required, should be legally obligated, and should be morally responsible to actually explain where the fuel charge has been, how it was collected, what were the results, and whether or not it was done appropriately. That, I would argue, is very important. Uh, the fuel surcharge feels like a bit of a shell game. Uh, the cost recovery model, of course, when you talk broad strokes, needs to be addressed because you can tell me all you like that it's our constitutional highway, but cost recovery at 65 seems uh, overly onerous on behalf of the traveling public. Uh, very quickly before we run out of time and go, and this is about uh, immigration, part of your portfolio. Yep. And you know, in January, the largest month in Newfoundland and Labrador has ever provided applications to the federal government. The federal government has agreed to uh, allow for us to double our capacity. And I'm pro-immigration. Everybody knows it. There's a societal issue. There's an economic issue. We have a population concern here in this province. But w- from where I sit, we're simply not prepared. So it's offered as a good news story, but we still have families who have been here for months still in hotel rooms. We still have people who are trying their very best to see credentials transferred. We still have language burdens or bur- hurdles that have to be cleared. We still have uh, access to health care. That is a prime concern for people in the province. So my assertion, and I'll get your reaction, is it's fine to talk about the numbers and doubling capacity, but the reality is we're just not prepared for when they arrive. And that might mean they leave before we hope they do, and or they see this uh, brief relief 
not what they thought it would be because a family five in a hotel room for months on end is not what they signed up for. Yeah. Well, it's hard to argue that um, that there are not people who are facing some transitions. They are. Uh, it would be expected if you and I were to move to to Kiev or to Montreal tomorrow, I think it would be realistic that it would take us at least 50 days to sort of get settled, find a job. If we went to Montreal with two suitcases in our in our total possession, that was it, and found ourselves uh, in downtown Montreal, I would argue that it would take us a, ser- a little bit of time to be able to, A, find a place to live, find a job, start a brand new life, and uh, find schools to do everything that was required. Patty, the truth is, is that while, yes, there are, there's lots of chat that uh, there's the Ukrainians in particular are taking some time to be able to get resettled, 70% are basically, you know, we had a huge surge in Ukrainian arrivals in January and February and early March when there was some risk that the federal government was going to shut down the the pathway from Ukraine to Newfoundland and Labrador, to, well, Ukraine to Canada. So there was a lot of Ukrainians that arrived. In fact, we now have 2,700 Ukrainians living in our province. The, the good news story here is that the vast, vast majority of them have actually found work and, and market housing, not social housing, market housing. And they're continuing to find it. So it is working. So while I don't disagree that, you know, we've got to double down our efforts, just as we double down our efforts to attract people, we've got to double down our efforts to get all the necessary things in place to be able to support them. It's one of the reasons why with the big, big gush of money that's coming in for housing that the provincial government just signed with the feds, some of it is earmarked for newcomer housing. Okay. But with, with that said, I, I just think we are doing a damn good job, and if we're going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, well, we're going to go back to where we were a long time ago and failing at bringing in newcomers. Yeah, I don't know if it has to be one or the other. And the difference between me going to Montreal with two suitcases or Kiev with two suitcases is that I would have chosen to do exactly that. But we, have, of course, put an office in Poland and Lord attracted uh, and invited them to come, all the while not necessarily in full prepared, very much like $10 a day daycare. It all sounds great, but without the infrastructure in place, it becomes a confusing and troubling matter for families who can't find a spot. And I would assume the same could be said, not just for Ukrainians, but newcomers, because they've got a certain idea about what to expect upon arrival, and maybe for the 30%, nowhere near realizing that potential dream. And I'm a pro-immigration guy, which I take knocks for, which I couldn't care less. I have my reasons for why I feel that way. And I appreciate you that. You have always been a great supporter of bringing diversity uh, and strength to our economy and to our to our social fabric. So and, yep. and being prepared for that is part and parcel. Of the it's in the conversation, hand in glove. I appreciate the time, Minister Byrne. Off to the break, I go. All the best to you. Thanks Take for the care. time. My Bye-bye. pleasure. Bye bye, Jerry Byrne. Uh, Take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the PSAC deal, and then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to quickly start with applauding Holyrood and the city of St. John's uh, for moving in a greener direction with, uh, with uh, in Holyrood's case, they're going to have some, uh, some EV shuttles by the sound of it that are going to allow the residents to move around with uh, almost no footprint and uh, city of St. John's investing to help the province and the feds in uh, some green initiatives for some uh, hybrid buses. So, 
Yeah, back before happened. before Metrobus moved out of their uh, depot there on Freshwater Road, and there was some look around the country maybe buying some of these new modernized greener buses, and they didn't fit. <laughs> so, yeah. so we didn't buy any anyway. No, and you know when you look at the size of those buses, sometimes, and I like the fact that they're looking at maybe having smaller buses on routes, depending on the time of the day. And I think that's the type of flexibility we need to wrap our heads around: is that you don't need these massive diesel-powered buses going on. A lot of times there's four or five people on them, but there's times when you need to have that uh, high capacity and, and, you know, stick the buses on when you need them and and use smaller stuff when you need them. And just for some Metrobus clarification uh, stuff, is Metrobus and the GoBus drivers. GoBus ridership is up almost 80% since pre-pandemic numbers were recorded, and they have contracted out the operations to an Ontario-based company. So while they are actively trying to help, and we're way down in Metro uh, GoBus drivers, there is a company that operates that system, you know, I think in some form of partnership with Metrobus, but it's not in full a Metrobus and consequently a City of St. John's issue, just to put that out there. Correct. Uh, just a quick comment on the Marine Atlantic situation, and and, and Minister Byrne kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit. Um, transportation revenue, so the money they charge the users for Metrobus, has actually been declining. And um, and like in 2018, it was 100 million dollars, and 2022 was 88 million. So there's been a tre- downward trend. The fuel surcharge is also downward trending. However, um, 20 uh, 2018. We had $27 million worth of fuel costs. 2022, we had $27 million in fuel costs. So, so Jerry, to Minister Burns' point, they want more money to pay their operating costs, i.e. staff and, and all the other things that cost to run the thing. It isn't directly because they're spending more money on fuel. Although, as a percentage of revenue, they are. So just to throw that into the conversation. Okay, let's get to PSAC. So... Um, so it, you know, Monday I woke up to the news that had been settled, and and I was kind of surprised. And and when you dig into, you had Minister O'Regan on Friday, and fascinating how these guys tiptoe around their responsibility. I mean, one of his comments was, "I like to tell stories," and and I was thinking to myself, "Yeah, I don't know what stories you guys tell yourselves when when you're sitting around the cabinet table, but fiscal responsibility should be one of those stories." And you know. And everybody knew, including him, that it was setting the tone for every other employee's relationship with both public sector unions as well as private sector unions, as well as just your relationship with your employer. And and PSAC were very clear about that. Chris Elwood said it. It's going to set the bar for all employees in Canada. Chris Delaborte says Ottawa. Now they're talking about... Our, our CRA workers, Ottawa has to step up and raise the bar because the way we they treat federal employees will spill over into other sectors. So if only people in other sectors, including provincial and municipal government employees, had such a good deal, if only they did, if only they were waking up on Monday knowing that they were going to get a check for probably around, on average, $6,784. That, that is the 2021 and the 2022 back pay plus the $2,500 signing bonus. And I don't know how public sector unions and the, pe- the people who represent us, the taxpayer, figured it was a good idea to start making that just a straight straight up. Whether you go on strike or you don't go on strike, here's a here's $2,500 or $2,000 so that you get to work again for another year. Like, thank you so much for taking our money every two weeks and having a pension and the benefits that go along with it. And by the way, here's a couple of thousand dollars so that you can, I don't know, go to Florida or put a new kit, new 
bathroom in your I don't know how this, this all happens. And then on top of that, of course, another $2,516 on average for 2023, an extra $1,670.96 for 2024. So, so it works out, too, that, that it's a little over $10,000 they're getting in total if you count the bonus, but but their pay will go up $8,471 on average. Thank you very much, taxpayers. Well, given the fact they haven't had a contract for a couple of years and the uh, price tag that government put forward, or I guess Treasury Board put forward, around 3% a year, it's just been extended to 4 and they pretty much got what they wanted financially. I'm not surprised with the wage-related matters. And, in fact, you know, as, as someone who's, again, I don't work for Treasury Board, I don't, I'm not a member of PSAC, I think that the federal government, if we're talking about cost control or if we're talking about remuneration in full or remote work or seniority and that kind of stuff, I'm pretty sure Mona Forche thinks that she got the better of this. Well, I mean, the union really asked for the stars, the sun, and they accepted the moon, which which I know is generally the way we we, our representatives seem to make decisions as it relates to us, the taxpayers, who have to ultimately pay. So, And it's amazing how they couch the information. They say it's going to cost $1.3 billion, half of what they thought it was going to count. But that's only to do with the PSAC locals that are out right now. Now, no, sorry, the ones that just settled. Yeah, so, it's 120 so, out of 155, yeah. Right. So, so they're leaving out the CRA, but they're also leaving out the fact that anybody who manages or has anything to do with those bargaining units also will get raises. They don't talk about that. They don't cost that out. They don't cost about the fact that every manager is going to get the exact same raises. They won't get the signing bonus, but they'll get the same raises. And the other thing is that every, every, every collective agreement with the federal government employees, every single one of them has expired, every single one except for one. Except for one. So when you go down to the list, every single one of them is expired in 2022 or early 2023. There's only one that was negotiated into 2023. Sorry, into 2026. So there's one. So, so, so it, you know, it, it isn't just those. And it isn't just the fact that now everybody else and, – and it's amazing how Seamus talks about – Minister Reagan talks about uh, the fact that the federal government has to be competitive because they need to keep their employees when they're part by hiring all the employees they're creating this tight they're they're helping to contribute to this tight labor market because they're taking people out of the workforce so so they're the largest employer as he correctly stated the federal government is the largest employer in the country and not only that they pay their employees you know relatively speaking well and obviously no matter what even during covid i mean anybody who didn't realize how valuable job security was they saw it then i mean you know i i, I just don't know how you know, when we have a $40 billion deficit and, you know, what is this going to add? Maybe another $5 billion, maybe by the time it works its way through every part of the of the public service, plus the fact that now all their pensions are all going to go up proportionate to it as well. I mean, it, it, like, it doesn't begrudge to every member. It, it is not about, it's not about the fact that the members don't deserve to have good jobs, and I think they have good jobs, and be treated fairly, which they need to be treated fairly. Um, so it's not an individual thing. It's just, it's just when... The people who represent them don't talk about their responsibility to us, the taxpayers, to their children, to their future children. It really literally is like we are heroes and, you know, we need to be – we need – we didn't make up for inflation. Well, we know that around this province, around this country, there are people who, even if they got that kind of raise on their meager pay – wouldn't make up for inflation. But but these people, a lot of them who are working from home, which a lot of them were working from home, inflation 
like they no longer had the same expenses they did before, and that wasn't couched couched in the negotiation. You know, the fact that if you were working from home, how much money is I mean, cha- uh, well, because that's a moving target. Um, you know, you know. So I've got the same people that pick at me about uh, the same stuff every day, but. Insofar as the rate of pay afforded to them, when you ask an organized labor leader, regardless if it's provincially or on the federal front, they'll say it is not the place for government to turn to right-size their fiscal either responsibility or irresponsibility on the backs of the workers. And in some form, they're not wrong. I mean, because if we look at government largesse in particular, I think there's lots of other areas where, you know, if you see expenditures and carefully examine where that money flows, then to the workforce is infinitesimal to other parts of the economy that they pretend they're supporting by saying they're investing when all they really do is a spending. So, you know, to manage a budget or to balance a budget on the backs of the workers is also asking for some huge problems, even for services for Canadians. Now, do I think people are going to lose their jobs who were hired on to be part of overseeing and is, uh, uh, being part of the pandemic support programs? Absolutely. And I think that's where the next tricky conversation will happen is based on seniority versus the merit and all these uh, case-by-case basis for remote work. So I think the tale is furthest thing from told on this front as of yet. Uh, very quickly before I go. Well, two things. First of all, the people work from home. We have really good numbers and how effective and efficient they were, and, and I do applaud Treasury Board for going down the road. But everyone needs to realize that ultimately the people negotiating with these public sector unions also benefit from the exact same wage increases. But the other thing to say is, is wages are not an infinitesimal, a very small portion of our expenses. In Newfoundland and Labrador, they're over half of the revenue that we take in, not necessarily what we spend, but, but pretty close to it. So it is a very significant thing. And then when you tack contracting on top of it, which is definitely a big problem, um, then, you know, it's all relevant and it all matters, and it matters to our children, to all of us. So everyone, stay safe, have fun, take care. You too, Tom. All the best. Bye bye. And that'll get some pushback, and so be it. That's the nature of the program. If you want to get in on that part of the conversation, all you have to do is pick up the phone. Zeta and Jeff, appreciate your patience. We're coming back to speak with you right after this. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to Zeta Kavanaugh from the Multiple Sclerosis Society. Good morning, Zeta. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How about you? Fine, thank you. May is MS Awareness Month. And um, this month we have a variety of activities on the go. I have created during COVID uh, where we were all locked in and everything and couldn't um, get to support groups and everything. Um, I created uh, a group, my own group called Small and Warriors, Small and Warriors NL. And there's a local support group. We're nonprofit. We don't do fundraisers. And um, we just do support and awareness we do and um we have we're on facebook twitter and instagram you will find all of our activities for the month of may on our facebook group uh we put off education sessions we do flag racings we did flag racing yesterday with city st john's uh we uh at um, mount pearl tonight um, City Hall with uh, proclamation signing and uh, we're made up of uh, volunteers that are living with multiple sclerosis or volunteers that have 
family or loved ones with uh, multiple sclerosis. What do people, what's some of the misnomers or the misunderstandings about MS in the community? Because unless you know somebody or you have it yourself, you probably just have a vague idea of what it really means and how quickly the disease advances and treatment's available. So what do you, what do you want people to know? Well, uh, if, you, if you met me, you would not know I have MS. You, uh, don't, it's not visible. MS is an invisible illness, unless, like, there's different stages of MS. So my MS moves very slowly. Uh, I have relapsing remitting, so it's a lower scale office. Uh, I might one day, and hopefully never, but might one day it get really bad, and I'll have to go to a wheelchair or cane or that. But um, and there's nothing wrong with the mobility aids because mobility aids helps a great deal. Uh, but you meet somebody else that got progressive MS and they're just like once they're diagnosed it's like bang 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 and they're you know using mobility aids uh and you can tell that okay maybe something's the matter with that person but you're not 100% sure but I could walk down the street and you never know with me but when I got diagnosed in 2010 I lost the ability to walk so I laid in the bed, in a hospital bed, not knowing I was going to walk again. So with determination, exercise, with our Eastern health, with the great uh, resources they have for us, uh, I walked again. I walked again. And I drive. I do. And um, so we want people to realize that even though we have MS, uh, with with multiple sclerosis, with like any other illness, there comes uh, discrimination, uh, mental health, and you spoke earlier in, in your program about mental health uh, being this week being mental health week. Uh, mental health depression is very big in people with MS, um, and when I say all that, it's because. You could wake up one morning and your feet won't go to the floor or you're seeing triple of your vision. You can't see. And you go to a hospital, you go to a neurologist, and you know in the back of your head more than likely it's your MS. Uh, and they look at you, they know it, and they say, you know, there's nothing they can do for you. And... So your body is taking away your independence. And it, it attacks your central nervous system. So is there any, so some of the early warning signs, you know, whether it be with vision troubles, as you just mentioned, and some tingly feelings, generally on one side of your body or the, or the other, does there, mm -hmm. is there any upside to early intervention, early diagnosis? Yes. Yes, it is. Because uh, early diagnosis, but you have to remember too, with multiple sclerosis, it is hard to hard to diagnose because it mimics all other illness. So uh, we take, for example, just say, for example, you're looking at lupus. You look at lupus and look at MS symptoms, and you will see a repeat 
of the symptoms. So the neurologist and your healthcare team, from your GP right to your neurologist, have to iron out everything else before they definitely can say you have multiple sclerosis. But there is an upside to the early uh, diagnosis because they can get you on an MS drug that reduces the relapse. Nothing cures MS. We haven't got a cure for it, but it reduces the relapses on in us. And um, now some people choose to take the drugs and they do great. Some people choose not to take the drugs for one reason or another. And uh, and they do great. Some people just go by um, exercise and healthy living without the drugs. But that is a decision that's made between you and your neurologist, between you and your health care team. That's not a decision that you come to a support group that I have and we can give you that choice. All we can give you is that you come, you speak to us, you know, and you tell us I'm thinking about this drug, we can give you weird to find information on that. And when I do say that, anybody that's listening, if they're wondering about MS or, you know, maybe I have it or somebody I know have it, don't go through these all these chat lines and this internet stuff. Go right to the MS Society of Canada website. That got the true information. I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else you want to say, Zita? No, I hope we get to see people out. Tell them to check out our Facebook page, and everybody's welcome. Appreciate the time, Zita. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Zita Kavanaugh with the Multiple Sclerosis Society of Newfoundland Labrador. Let's take a break, Jack, or Jeff, pardon me, you're next. Talk about the mental health services or lack thereof in Labrador. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Jeff, you're on the air. Uh, hey there. How are things? I'm doing okay this morning. How about you? <laughs> Not too bad, thanks. Good. Um, uh, yeah, so I wanted to talk about, um, like, mental health seems to be a recurring issue and, and topic um, uh more often than not lately in 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 our world um and and kind of just wanted to share like my own experience with it like um i've i've only recently in the last couple of years that is like um become aware that of of issues that i had that i otherwise would have passed off as as something else and and entered into like a therapy and discovered therapy and and all the supports that it provides um and and just recently completed a like a, a one year um pretty extensive um dialectical behavioral therapy um program um which was once a week done over zoom uh in a group type setting and was very beneficial for me um but but my concern is is that like i'm I'm one that like having gone through that and and given my own lived experience um I'm aware of the supports that are available to me and and I'm afforded more perhaps than some others like where I'm uh, a beneficiary of the Nunatsiavut government and 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 in that like the Department of Health and Social Development has services and and supports available to me specifically um 
but uh, like awareness, I think is is something that um, may be lacking uh, in in the general in the like the general landscape or, or like people's purview or knowledge or, or I, I, I can only speak from like my own point of view that like I I had a I had a perceived notion of like what quote unquote like mental health is or like you know what I mean I do I think uh, well in an effort to talk about awareness and uh, sharing information Help us understand a little clearer what dialectical behavior therapy looks like, because the word itself means opposites. So are you taught different strategies or different coping mechanisms that seem like they are completely opposed to each other? Tell us exactly what goes on. Um, well, my understanding of it, and and I think um, each person, each individual that, um, that, that goes through it may experience it differently, and, and it can be helpful. Um, it's very extensive um, uh, or comprehensive uh, in that there's, um, yeah, it is dialectic, but that in itself, um, by definition, is, like you said, opposite. But that that only helps, or at least helped me understand that um, I can feel happy and sad at the same time. Um, or Or I can... <laughs> love a situation and and really not enjoy it very much um but but like dbt uh like there there there's a whole uh, it, like i said comprehensively it's um you learn like emotion regulation distress tolerance um interpersonal effectiveness um <clears throat> and like and, and well, that being said, like um, I was one when I entered into like the realm of therapy and stuff. I, I, I was like, okay, so I'm I'm feeling messed up. Fix me. And and that's not exactly how it works. <laughs> um, like it, it doesn't work unless I put the work in, right? So um, and and apply the tools that I've acquired in therapy. And and I think that may be a misnomer for some. Um, but also um, that I think if, if someone, like uh, like for myself, uh, I would look at these people, let's say, I don't I don't know, spokespeople um, that, that you may hear on the radio or come on TV and say, hey, I'm, I'm someone that's, you know, um, I'm suffering from a certain, a certain affliction. And and I, I, it would be easy for me to tell myself that, yeah, but like he's fine. That's not me. I'm 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 dealing with something different. But but DBT, like for, for me, like once once now now that I understand it better and have been applying what I've learned, has has helped me immensely. And that's the good news. So. You say that you might be afforded a better opportunity for access to treatment. How do the conversations go with others who aren't represented by the uh, the group that you are, where you have some additional benefits possibly available to you? So what does it look like for the vast majority, or for others in Labrador for access to treatment or services? Um, well, well, I've noticed just from, like, in my own experience, um, I, I have now as a result, uh, and, and I... I well, I'm sharing it with everyone now, I guess, but um, 
that, that had been aware of me having gone through therapy and such um, that come to me and 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 I'm now expected to be like the either a facilitator or a navigator or something along those lines in guiding friends that I have and and it can be something as simple as asking me for a phone number or it could be a phone call in the middle of the night saying um, <laughs> someone's in distress um, <clears throat> but I think uh, like I've noticed particularly here in Goose Bay we, we have a mental health department at at the health center here um, <clears throat> but their hours have recently changed from uh, it used to be like 8 to 4 and I think there are people there 8 to 4 and then possibly beyond but now it's shifted to 9 to 3 and if you call like if, if I were to call for instance and request that I feel like I wanted to speak with someone because I'm dealing with something or trying to um, uh, then then I wait for a call back and other than that like there's a mobile crisis team which is great and um, I've availed of that but but those situations like for someone that's new to this um, and have probably been or possibly been like long suffering from something um, when it comes to a point where where they have no no other option than than all this like they find themselves in a situation and the mobile crisis team responds which includes like the RCMP and 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 like um like maybe a, a trauma informed counselor or something but you're either brought to the lockup or or the emergency room and and it's almost like there's kind of no in between um I mean, there are other supports like the like the warm line or or um, you can call eight one one and such. But and 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 it's no fault of the counselors, I don't believe, because like we have fabulous counselors here, like um, that that I'm sure even wish themselves they could do, be doing more. But it seems it seems like there's just something lacking, or or there there could be more done. And, and I know like health in itself. It's like an evolving and fluid thing that no government can like say fix or but but I think there can be imp- always be improvements made absolutely uh, I'm glad you made time for the show, Jeff. Would you like to say anything else this morning? Uh, no, that's about it thanks i appreciate it. appreciate the call all right, take good okay. care of yourself <laughs> thanks all righty bye bye uh David, where would you like me to go here? Stick with Labrador. Okay, let's go to line number five and say good morning to the mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay. That's George Andrews. Mayor Andrews, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing okay. I appreciate the time, sir. So we've been talking about the homelessness issue, mental health matters, addictions, public safety, all in the same breath. And now council has decided to take this particular action. Remove the park benches from a couple of notable sites along the bike trail and around the monument, the USAF monument. Why do this? Uh, Patty, uh, we're struggling as a community. <coughs> Excuse me, and uh, we're frustrated. Um, you know, we're, we're a small town of 8,000 people. Uh, we have a uh, tremendous. Uh, last year, we went through a tremendous uh, issue with uh, increased activity in terms of uh, our public safety uh, concerns. Um, right now, you know, um, six weeks ago, we uh, had a conversation about a planned security process that the provincial government had uh, 
had a uh, budgeted in the budget, and we hadn't heard anything. So I asked to uh, speak with the uh, minister in terms of what the plan was and, uh, you know, our involvement in, in that potential plan. That was five weeks ago today. Last week, we had a uh, an acute response team, which is a, a group of federal, or, uh, sorry, provincial cabinet ministers and, and other agencies, including the town, to try to, um, you know, to look at our crisis situation in terms of, uh, you know, what we've been bringing forward as concerns in terms of public safety, lewd acts, um, illegal, aggressive, illegal activity, aggressive panhandling, things like that. And, and just generally in our community, if you follow any kind of social media, um, you know, posts, uh, uh, for our, you know, sites from our community, what you're seeing is a concern from residents. Um, you know, they've lost the use of their community. They're not safe. Um, people are being, uh, you know, accosted, uh, looking for money, um, some serious crimes, uh, you know, lewd acts, uh, people urinating in, in public by schools and things like that. I mean, it, it's it's difficult for a community of our size uh, to uh, to understand and. Uh, to, to be able to deal with it. So from as a, as a municipality, we don't have a lot of things that we can uh, we can use. We don't have a lot of tools in the toolbox to deal with, you know, the things that we're, we're, we've been at now for two solid years since we were elected as a council. Um, so the benches uh, were, were put in place uh, throughout the community uh, on our bike trail and, and especially in front of the United States Air Force Monument uh, for an intended purpose. And that intended purpose was the enjoyment for community members to be able to... Uh, you know, to sit and enjoy and, and think about what the, the particular area meant to them or whatever. But that uh, the intended purpose, but what the actual purpose now is these days, is a, a spot for gathering. Uh, what results in is uh, activity. And I'll give you an example. For instance, coming down the bike trail, um, you know, folks that like to walk, whether they like to walk alone or, you know, just out for a general casual stroll, uh, are coming up on uh, people that are, are around the benches uh, in groups. And, uh, you know, they're, they're causing some concern, uh, whether it's comments or or actions, or they they witness fighting, or drug activity, or whatever, and it's happening, uh, you know, throughout the community from benches. So, from the perspective, uh, we reached out um, to to ask about the security service. So we did have a conversation, um, you know, five weeks ago, where, and I've heard nothing since. Uh, a week ago, we had another conversation. We were supposed to get a call sort of right away. It seems like that there's a you know a lot of activity around us, and until we can get some some sort of process, whether that be, you know, some security assistance, uh, additional, you know, RCMP patrolling uh, from, you know, additional members' perspective or something to start to enhance the, the safety and, and the general concerns that my community has been witnessing and and, and, and going through for two years. You know, uh, last summer we uh, we had an issue where there was about 80 people in, in town, 80 folks that uh, were conducting majority of this activity and causing uh, a lot of the concern. So last fall, uh, we had mentioned that we were kind of worried that when the Winter Games came in March, weather traditionally gets better, more people come to the community, et cetera. Uh, we were worried that, you know, what started last summer in June or so would start earlier. And indeed it has. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, a few weeks ago we saw uh, a rash of, of break-ins and, you know, other crimes. Um, we're seeing larger groups now. Like the other evening, there was a group of about 20 folks underneath our UAE, the, uh, the plane, the monument to the United States Air Force. Um, beer bottles throwing, rocks throwing, you know, drinking going on, that kinds of stuff. And it's a huge concern. We've seen the change in dynamic now from uh, the folks that, uh, you know, were there last year to a much younger, uh, more uh, 
aggressive sort of, uh, uh, I guess, and less caring uh, group of folks, and, and our community is frustrated. So, I mean, you know, we've reached out to the province on multiple occasions. Uh, we're still waiting to hear. We weren't included in, uh, you know, a plan. Apparently there was a plan presented to government. Uh, we weren't included in that process. Um, it's just really frustrating. And, and as a community, you know, we can only do so much, Patty, and uh, we're struggling. We are really, really struggling with this issue, and it's sad because our community is a beautiful spot. It's a great place to raise a family, and lots of activities, but we seem to not be able to enjoy it as we have. And we fully understand the issues and the reasons and things. Uh, we understand we're not going to enforce our way out of this issue. Uh, but like I say, and I always go back to my comment, last summer, and we don't have a, a luxury now, but last summer, where else in the province do you need a security force watching and you know observing for the safety of our children to go from a high school to a place you know a small restaurant like Kim's or wherever how many other places are communities in Newfoundland and Labrador have to have that uh, kind of uh, process in place I don't know but there's certainly some pockets and neighborhoods in the city where I live where that's an omnipresent fear I'm just curious as the thought process because I know you have very few tools or levers that you can pull on this front but when we talk about behavioral concerns or lewd acts or mental illness or uh, just homelessness or what have you, removing the benches, which may indeed be the focal point for a place to hang out, but of course might also double as a bed. So for taking the benches away, how do you think or how does council think that will impact people's want to congregate and behave like they have been doing around the benches, even when the benches are gone? Patty, we'd be, uh, you know, we've we've witnessed the activity. If it was just a place to sleep or if it was just a place to congregate or if it was just, you know, a a passive sort of uh, purpose, we wouldn't, I don't think council would blink an eye. And, uh, you know, from that perspective, but it's the activity that's happening around that. Our children are witnessing things that uh, they shouldn't witness. Uh, Now, you know, I I mean, we're not saying that this is a pristine community by no far stretch. I mean, every community has challenges in terms of, you know, issues that happen within communities. Uh, But at the end of the day, this activity that's, uh, that's going on, is hugely, hugely creating uh, issues like, you know, kids, uh, parents won't let kids walk on the street. Parents won't let kids do this. Uh, parents won't use the bike trail anymore. You know, when you're, when you're hearing stuff. Uh, so as a council, until we can get some sort of, you know, uh, whether that's a security force or whether that's uh, something to help us uh, monitor uh, and, and, you know, report to police that, we, uh, we, we just felt that uh, this was... Uh, and what we observe as a community, and, uh, you know, generally speaking, there's support in the community for what we did. Was it an easy decision? Absolutely not. And, I mean, you know, I had a comment from a lady last night that said she's never voting again. And I said, you know, I really feel bad for you, and I really feel bad that you took that decision. But at the end of the day, as a, you know, as a group of people that were, uh, you know, voted in to take care of what in their best, or what, the community, what they feel is in the community's best interest, uh, we took this decision. It's not a permanent uh, thing, but it's, a, uh, it's a, a situation where, you know, we need to get some help. We need to be able to monitor activity better uh, and report the illegal activity so it doesn't escalate. We don't get groups of 20 folks. You know, lawless uh, sort of, you know, groups of 20 folks sitting around throwing rocks and beer bottles and sitting right by uh, a roadway, a major roadway in our community, and, you know, crossing the road and stuff like that. So so just generally speaking, causing issues that, uh, excuse me, that are of concern. Um, You know, we, we... 
we just need help. And we're that, that we took that decision, and it wasn't late, a very late uh, conversation. It was a you know a conversation that uh, caused us a lot of concern. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, that's where we uh, that's where we decided to go. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor. Thank you, sir. Anytime, sir. Richard. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks, Jay. Uh, pleasure. That's uh, George Andrews. He's the mayor. Happy Valley Goose Bay. Let's take a break. When we come back, someone wants to talk about the grocery rebate, respite workers, and plenty of time for you. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let us go. Line number two. Morning, Dan. You're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you today? Best kind. How about yourself? Pretty good. Boy, I'm calling about this GST, HST uh, grocery rebate. Yep. Who's, who's eligible for that? The eligibility is, if it's the same thing for GST regularly. If you're eligible for GST in your annual filings, then you're eligible for this bump up. Oh, very good. Yeah, nothing changes for the eligibility. And when will uh, that be sent out? Well, they didn't give us a firm date, nor have I, well, I personally haven't heard a firm date, but the remaining... Uh, dates on the calendar for GST, I believe, are the 5th of July and the 5th of October. I've heard people tell me it's going to be in July, but I haven't seen an announced firm date. But that's the next two options, 5th of July and 5th of October. Okay, very good. That's all you needed, sir? That's all I needed. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Take good care. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, now maybe I missed something in the past few days, but... I don't think they gave us a firm date. We've long tried to get confirmation with the department. We're told in unofficial channels that it's the 5th of July. And, of course, once again, people call it a grocery rebate because there's a lot of talk coming from the NDP about groceries when it's just the same GST bump that we saw one time last year. Uh, maximum value, of, uh, yes, maximum value to eligible families with two kids is up to $467. Individuals, $235. And same thing for individual seniors. So if you're eligible based on your tax filing, which is one of those wrinkles that we were talking about with the want in some corners for CRA to extend the tax deadline, because unless you file your taxes, then you won't get some of these benefit checks, whether it be the child tax benefit and or this GST check. Uh, Let's go to line number three. Cody, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, First time caller, so bear with me. I might be stumbling over my words here for a bit. Yeah, you take your time. I do it all the time, boy. Yeah, uh, love your show. Keep up the great work. Uh, refresh my memory here. We've had a doctor calling in multiple times regarding uh, billing issues with MCP. Uh, one to seven code, I believe it is, for anything over 15 minutes, depending on the if it fit the criteria for the issue. That's right. It's a, a gentleman named Dr. Westheisen. Yes. So I've been hearing him on and on going on about this. And, you know, I, I just happened to have an appointment today with an amazing family doctor I've had for years. And the woman goes above and beyond for all her patients. And many of those those patients, she is doing over 15 minutes and they do fall on the classification of billing the one to seven code. So I asked her about that. And we're going to leave the name out of it, but it was followed by a laugh and, oh, I gave up on trying to go after that years ago. She says she's not getting paid for at least 5% of billings because they would have to fight tooth and nail with these auditors to get that extra, what is it, $6 or peanuts just for taking the time out of her day to take it over 15 minutes to give me a thorough uh, appointment you know, which is hard to find these days with the healthcare system the way it is. And we're not even paying them the peanuts extra 
going over 15 minutes. Like, why do they have to fight for money they're entitled to that fits within the, the requirements and guidelines, and they're going tooth and nail for a couple extra bucks? And over a year or over five years or like the other doctor, that's a lot of money over time. And we should be giving them more than six dollars, but we can't. We take it away and we red flag them and make them feel like criminals. It's absolutely absurd. Well, that's the word that uh, Dr. Westhazen used. You know, made to feel like he's the criminal here. I suppose now I can't speak on behalf of MCP billing because I don't work there, but I think some of this is automatic. Is that when the billing comes in the way it does? And now Dr. Westhazen has also gone on to say he wants his patients to call billing to tell them that they are in need of those extended appointments. But I think you're 100% right here. I, I'm just supposing that for MCP billing, they would question how doctors bill with whatever code because the possibility that some doctors out there may abuse the system. I suppose that's the way it is. But, you know, when I hear Dr. Westhazen describe his after-hours work and his home visits and trying to help people manage their chronic uh, illnesses, it really feels like he's up against it. He says for most doctors, they get an audit once every few months. And the last time we spoke, he was sitting with at least a couple hundred in the very recent past sitting on his desk. So there is some sort of bizarre problem here with how the that portion of MCP deals with doctors because his frustration is real, and I don't quite get it. I'm lucky enough to have a really quality family doctor. Just got her in the recent past. My last visit, which was last week, was well uh, over 15 minutes. And I don't think I'm dealing with a chronic illness. At least I hope I'm not. But we were in there for at least about 15 minutes. And I thought about asking her about her, bi her billing practices, but I thought that was a bit too much, really not my business. So I, I didn't do it after all, but I was really curious how she was going to bill it. Yeah, because if, 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 if that person isn't getting the proper pay for the work they're doing, that, that's, that's not right. And they should be awarded what they're entitled to and we're already in a crisis here now why don't we i get weed out the bad folks there's it's in every job setting every workplace everywhere around the world weed them out but don't make the good people going out of their way like the doctor doing home visits working over 15 minutes if your doctor just did your visit for you over 15 minutes and it was fit the criteria for a chronic illness or whatever that sh that person should absolutely get that extra money it's it's outrageous that they're not especially given the care from some of these good family doctors and health professionals. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. And I guess it's a case-by-case -case basis, which makes it a very difficult topic to come down concisely on one side or the other because there may indeed be doctors out there maximizing their revenue with whatever billing code they choose to use. But then I hear your doctor and how you describe his or her comprehensive work. And Dr. Westhazen, and I'm sure many others out there who say, it's not worth my time to go through these audits. I'm just going to put in the billing as is and not, not ask for or fight for the additional $6. It's a bizarre situation. And it adds up over time when you're really oh, yeah. just doing your job at the best level and you're getting penalized for it. I, I felt absolutely dumbfounded when, she to when they told me what, the outcome was with this one to seven code billing and it's not even worth banding together basically as doctors or physicians to try to change it because it's it's, it's been a conversation for a while and it's been brought to light again by doc, that doctor and if someone's got to change there has to be an investigation or there has to be some sort of look at this billing system because it's it's not working it's working against the good people and the bad people I don't know. They're still out there. They're still continuing, and we're penalizing the good ones. So I'm sorry if I feel like I'm ranting or sound like that, but uh, it's just really disheartening to hear that 
they aren't getting the compensation they deserve at a bare minimum. Not to mention they're they're working like dogs. Their their pay isn't great. They're burning out. Like let's just give them what they're entitled to. They shouldn't have to jump through a bunch of hoops if you're auditing, you know, five times a year and you're passing the test. I'm a little surprised it wasn't uh, involving, uh, pardon me, if it wasn't addressed during the most recent negotiation between the province and the NLMA regarding the change in how we pay doctors from a full-on fee-for-service to a more of a blended capitation model. So you would have, I would have thought that all these different moving parts would have been part of that conversation. So, yeah, but anyway, I appreciate you making time for it, and I'm sure your doctor appreciates the support. Cody? Yeah, I got one more quick thing. Sure, Have we? I haven't heard, um, but is there? And I know we heard from the doctor saying that they've talked to people with NCP and they said it's a computer thing. But is there any uh, professional that works with MCP that could come try to make sense of this absolute atrocity that's happening to these doctors? Well, it, may, it might it? possibly. You know, there might be some plausible deniability associated with. Well, that's the computer doing it. But still, the computer gets all of its inputs from a human being. Decision-making initially starts with human because we're not talking about MCP billing being artificial intelligence, right? It's a program that someone yeah. wrote. So yeah. it's a it's good wrong. question. We'll try to get someone yeah. on. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate a great show, and uh, keep up the great work. Thanks, Take Cody. Care, Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Dave, I have no idea where I am. Do I owe us a break here? Yeah, okay, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the Liberal member for Fogo Island, Cape Friels. That's Derek Bragg. Minister Bragg, you're on the air. Oh, of course, he's the Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Patty, and thanks very much for taking my call this morning. No problem. What's on your mind? Uh, actually, before we get to whatever's on your mind, so the snow crab standoff is a huge issue. Some people are saying that it's time for the government to get directly involved, whether it be a price top-up to where the FFAW wanted at three fifty, whether it be encouraging both sides to get back to the table. We're going to find out more now at 11 o'clock from the, ASA, from the AS, a, ASP. But what is government's role in this standoff? So I know what my role has been. My role is to be actively uh, in conversation with both ASP and the FFAW. And uh, to be honest, Patty, I thought last Friday we might have had a deal uh, to get fishers back on the water. But my understanding it fell true. Is, and, and I know you want to ask me what that deal might have been, but I'm not at liberty to disclose that. That will be up to the FFAW and ASP to disclose what that, that deal may have been. So okay. I am actively being involved, uh, myself and Minister Davis as well. But I would think it's, uh, I am probably more actively involved because although I'm not responsible for the actual negotiation of the price, it is, a bit, it is my job to be involved to get the fishery started because people are getting antsy right now. We're into May. People who've got uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds of crab to catch want to get on the water. And we all know the price is not very high, and we all know that the markets are not good at this time. So it's a combination of bad markets that got us where we are. And and, and I guess the ASP has their release coming out you know, at 11, 11 o'clock today. So your role being what, as a mediator or not an arbitrator? I wouldn't but say so much a mediator, but as being involved in, and, and almost, I wouldn't say being pushy, but like being very encouraging. How's that? Okay. Uh, so we are where we are based on what the market is able to bear, but there's also a distinct problem with how we set the price. Now, I don't know exactly what the cure would be, but even the price-setting panel said the quiet parts out loud. They said, this is probably not the right price at 220 So what are the conversations like regarding changes to how we set price? And I don't think government should be involved in any form or fashion in setting it, but setting up the structure so that we get it closer to right versus just simply pick one price versus another and no wiggle room therein. 
So the structure of the panel, that was all restructured last year. We went through legislation that was changed. Again, as I said before on previous calls, Minister Davis would best be prepared to speak on this, but we consulted with both FFAW and ASP, and then the new structure that came forward was agreeable by all parties. Now, is there a problem right now this year? Sure there is, because the price is really, really low. No one, no one is asking us, not at ASP or the FFAW, is asking us to throw out the current structure. But what we have been talking about is a pricing formula. They were work, working at that for some time this year. They didn't get to resolve it before the season began. So my encouragement to both parties has been, why not keep working at it right now, get someone in each group to, to work on this and see if we can have something for next season. But that's not going to help this season, and, and to, in all fairness, Patty. But right now, time is getting to be off the essence. Weather has been a factor. April has been horrible. I don't know if anyone would have got out underwater even if the season was open. But we look forward to May bringing a lot better weather, which is going to give a lot of people with a lot of anxiety and, and, and wanting to go fishing. What does the price formula mean? Are we talking about the percentage of the price afforded to either side? No, the price formula, to be honest, I've never seen how they were working that down. I know they were pretty close. I, I did talk to Greg Pretty at one point last uh, earlier this season, in the spring, and he said, we're close. We are very, very close. So I would hope now we got a full year. The former seems to be where everybody needs to go. Uh, if not, uh, you know, maybe arbitration is the way it goes. That wasn't defeating last year to go straight into arbitration. But, you know, we have a professional arbitrator now who's really good in, in, in the job we're doing. Not to take away from the past boards, but this has been a step up from where we were last year. Last one on the fishery, and then we can talk about the topic you called on. So... I don't know what's going on here, but I'm seeing pictures and seeing videos and people telling me that they're seeing dead seals wash up on their shores, whether it be with their heads bashed in, whether that be ice crushing them or another, someone, something else in the sea. Are you hearing the stories? What do we know? Yeah, well, normally, like, you would hear it on the straight shore. Not hearing that, like, the Mosgrave River up to Cape Friels, you get a lot of, uh, I guess, the way the tide runs. You would see a lot of, lot of the, uh, lot of, lot of dead seals. We saw a lot of seabirds in that area last year. I'm not getting a lot of reports from that area of, of, of a lot of dead seals, but it may have happened in the bays where there were younger seals. I don't think there's any older seals. A lot of them seal have some white coats left on them, so they probably went from drowning because they couldn't really swim that well because all there was ice it wasn't an abundance of ice this year yeah we had some ice concerns on and off so yeah, much on shore have actually popped in the water as well which 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 left the pops at a real real vulnerable stage because normally the first two weeks they would spend just feeding and, and basking on the ice fair enough i know you want to talk about something inside of forestry what what is it yeah i want to talk about forest fire season uh, believe it or not yesterday was the beginning of forest fire season which means everybody should have a permit for anything anything larger now than a ball up or a camp a campfire or a backyard fire we've had 30 six fires as of yesterday which is way too many uh, you know the season we went through last year how dry it's been we didn't have a lot of snow we're asking people to be extra vigilant when they're when they're having a fire anything larger than a campfire must have a permit without a permit you can be charged uh, grass fires seem to be the problem right now out of the 36 i'd say 33 have been grass fires that have gotten out of control and i gotta say patty i can't thank the volunteer fire departments enough for their response arbor breton is a great example of that a couple of nights ago our closest response would have been the next morning our air tankers actually can't drop water when it's eight degrees or less so we would have had been, been foot 
foot, uh, ground crews and helicopters would have been the response there. But the volunteer fire department, uh, my my hat is off to them. I'm bending knee, and I can't thank those people enough, not just in Arbor Britain, but in the other communities around the province as well. So hopefully the temperature clears 8 degrees sometime here in the future and forest fire season will still be on. Back in 2018, one of the water bombers was damaged. Government decided to just leave it on the sideline. Then a process was trying to unfold regarding selling it or what have you. And I think that would have been the fifth water bomber. So what's the pro- where do we stand with that particular unit? Are we selling it? Are we going to fix it? Are we going to buy a new one? Or what's the status? So that, I guess the conversation's still up there. And next time you get the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure on, he'd be best to answer that. But I can tell you from the four that we we have now on the crews that we have. We have outstanding crews. We have four now with a bigger capacity than the six previous uh, uh, tankers that we would have had. And last summer was the first time in many years that we had to get assistance come into our province. So for the most part, we have been there. We have been where we need it. And we have actually sent crews out. I know in my past two seasons there, we sent crews out to the mainland to help out with our with our air tankers and, and our ground crews. So we've been there to assist other other provinces, and I'm more than happy they were there to assist us last season. Uh, I appreciate the time here this morning, and we'll we'll follow up with the minister responsible because the last number I saw was maybe around. $20, $22 million of potential revenue if we can get this figured out. I uh, appreciate the time. Thank you, Minister. Um, Patty, before I go, I just wanted to ask, ask people, like if you're going to go out in your backyard and you're going to burn grass, do not do that. Do not burn any grass right now. Like if you're out and you're a farmer in the field and you, and you have all the equipment you need, like be extra vigilant. Make sure you notify your local volunteers. Make sure you notify your town council what you're doing. But if you can't burn safely with a permit, don't burn at all. Uh, last one. It just came to mind because I, I meant to ask you last time we spoke. You know, the governments want a willingness to see agriculture projects get off the ground. One yeah. area of concern in particular is out in Bloomfield where the provinces and the crown lands are back and forth with the, uh, the business owner over about an acre of land. The concept is, well, government talks big game about doubling food production, but we're not making it easy for whether it be hydroponics or traditional farming to get off the ground. So I've hear, I'm hearing that more often than not. Your thoughts as the Minister responsible? So my thoughts on that, Patty, we are doing, when people want us and, and seek our help, we are there to help them. We have ample farmland that's available in this province. I think it's $4 an acre in which people can get farmland in this province. Like, that is a deal second to none. Like, we are there. We're, we're out there to help where we can. We have a farm bank of equipment that farmers can use from time to time. Like, we are there to help people win and where possible. Are there little little places, little, little nuances where, where something may happen that, that is sort of conflicts and, and, and people don't get, for lack of a better way to put it, don't get their own way? But we have other areas. If any farmers out there right now that want to expand, I encourage them to reach out to our department and we'll set them up with a piece of satisfactory farmland. What are we going to do about hydroponics? I mean, it's a growing uh, a growing technology that can be really beneficial to this province given our seasonal concerns. There's no formal association in the country until the recent past, but it really feels like if we pepper the landscape with some hydroponic operations, and it wouldn't be government's responsibility, but to create the opportunity for people who wanted to bring it to where they live, we deal with a lot of food insecurity issues, proximity to and options, what have you. What do you think your role is in fostering the hydroponic side? Because we're all familiar with root vegetables and cattle crops and uh, canola and whatever else, but not so much. This is pretty new here. It is pretty new. Well, if you go back to the days of sprung, I guess, that was, that was probably a Panasonic move, step before this time. But right now, 
we are in the right place. We have some great facilities right now doing with hydroponics. I know uh, a place I visit on Fogo Island, they converted an old school out in Mount Pearl. There's a place that has office space and, and, and there's wall-to-wall greens out there. Like So there's great opportunity. And anyone, again, who's interested in hydroponics should also reach out to us because we're eager to help people and we're eager to listen to people's opportunities there. Appreciate the time. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Derek Bragg, Minister of Fisheries, Forestry, Agriculture. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll probably know more about what the Association of Seafood Producers has to say about snow crab and this season, which is getting away from us. And Heather, really appreciate your patience. She's there to talk about respite workers. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Heather. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to talk about uh, the situation with respite workers here in the province. Okay. Um, the 1st of April, we all heard about the boost that uh, daycare workers got in their salaries. Um, do you have any idea how much a respite worker would make now? No. Fifteen fifty-five an hour. Okay. There's no medical, no dental, no benefits whatsoever. And my big concern is I have a special needs son. He's 27 now. So he has a respite worker who takes him in the daytime. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to work. And he gets a few respite hours on the weekend. Uh, Right now, she would probably make more money if she went to McDonald's or one of the fast food places. And she'd also have medical and dental benefits. Um, I know of situations there's, there's people here or adults living on their own that rely on a respite worker to even get them out of bed. And they make the same pay. They have feeding tubes, uh, all the things go with somebody who's probably paraplegic or quadriplegic. Uh, they don't get paid anymore either. And there's cases where workers go into their job, <clears throat> they do their shift, and then they get called and say, you can't leave because we have no one come in to replace you because there's such a shortage of workers. Now, I have contacted Tom Osborne uh, about six weeks ago, and I got a reply that they would look into it. But since then, I haven't heard anything. So just, Before, to, be, just to be clear on respite workers, so are you saying that respite workers are working with folks who are quadriplegics or what have you? Because my understanding is that's more in the... Uh, the realm of a home care worker with specialized training as opposed to, you know, inside the world of respite, we're talking about short-term relief so that people can go to work or do daily tasks outside the house and what have you? Uh, The home care workers, uh, I've spoke to some of them, that work with quadriplegic patients get paid the same rate. Okay. They all fall under, uh, some of them I know actually try to work two jobs to make ends meet. Um, they fall under the same pay rate. Uh, before COVID, I had taken that to the government at the time, and they set up a conference at the Holiday Inns, and they brought in parents and families and people with disabilities from all across the province and put them up for a two-day seminar. And everybody voiced their concerns, and it was being taken back to the House. But when that was in 2019, and we haven't heard anything since. So that, some of these people haven't had a raise in three, four years or more. And you see minimum wage going up, and uh, there is nothing for them. If uh, I've talked to some parents who were involved with Easter Seals, 
and I've talked with some parents with children with disabilities, and their big worry is as you get older, there's going to come a time when we're not going to be able to take care of these children. And if when that time comes, if we don't have home care or respite workers, who's going who's going to be there to take care of these people? It's a fair question. I mean, how we train and pay and treat people working with the most vulnerable people in society, whether it be folks requiring respite care or home care or early childhood educators or personal care attendants, we're not necessarily on the right track on the senior side of the scale. No. And seniors, seniors uh, did rely. I know of seniors who rely on home care. They're living, they're living in their house, and they rely on, on home care also. And their, their workers get paid the same. So sometimes they're in situations where they don't have a worker when they need one because uh, the agency or some people are um, considered the employer themselves. They just can't find anyone to work. I appreciate the time and the concern here this morning. I'm going to do a little bit of a closer look at the numbers of people that are getting home care, respite care, some of the subsidies, because generally the client or the person or the family is responsible for the bulk of funding. There are some pockets of support and subsidies that are out there. I can't really think of the numbers right off the top of my head. There's also a uh, a special part of the program with uh, children who are on social assistance, but I'll try to figure some of that out this afternoon. Okay. So now, Patty, the way, it, the way it works when you're looking at that, when a person turns 18, they're considered financially an adult. Right. And any, Unless they have a disability, uh, yeah. Any... Any per, any um, respite or home care or whatever is not assessed on their family income. It's only on their income. Oh, so okay. if, if you, for instance, my son, he carries, he carries his teddy bear everywhere he goes. Uh, he, in some things, he has the mentality of like a six-year-old. Um, so he would never be able to hold a job or have, you know, have a source of income. So uh, that's where uh, Eastern Health or Health and Community Services are the ones providing the uh, workers for for him and for other people like that. I appreciate the time this morning. And while you were just speaking, there's a lady sent an email. She says she hasn't had a raise in eight years yeah. as a respite worker. Yeah, I know. Thanks for this, Heather. Okay, then. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And then there's also... Some of the retention bonus money that was spread around for different disciplines inside of healthcare, some support workers that were brought in during the pandemic, they were deemed ineligible for those retention bonuses, and the questions being asked as to why that is, and we'll try to get an answer directly from the minister responsible. Uh, let's take a break. Robert's there to talk about immigration, and Fred has some commentary he'd like to offer about what he heard from Minister Bragg. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Robert, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Sorry. Not too bad, I suppose. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Patty, this question is coming uh, completely out of ignorance and i'm just trying to understand what you know the final destination we're trying to achieve here when we're bringing in immigrants because it seems like from my understanding from what i'm hearing in the social media on the news and everything else that like a lot of these uh, immig immigrants are not staying and uh, i'm just trying to understand what the what the goal is here we're trying to do to make sure that when they come here they stay here you know like i heard Jerry Byrne on there this morning, you correct me if I'm wrong, but he said 70% of those people are working. Now, is that 70% that are staying or 70% uh, that, you know, that are left? Because, 
you also had a caller on there a few weeks ago. Uh, you weren't on your off. There was another gentleman looking after I don't know if it was Greg or it was, but she called in and said there was over 1,100 of them came in and only 44 stayed because Newfoundland is just too expensive to stay here. No, I, I haven't heard those numbers, but more immigrants are staying, so the retention numbers are up year over year, higher than they've ever been, which I guess is good news if we're putting in the effort and the, the money to attract them to come to this province. So the way I heard Minister Burns reference to 70% of Ukrainians are working is that they're working here. And consequently, if you're working here, that's greater likelihood than you're, that you're staying here. Right, but... We have no guarantee on that, and I'm not saying that we should force them to stay. And that's not what I'm saying. Don't get me wrong, because like I said again, I'm calling out of ignorance. But you know, if they're staying, they're working right now. But according to this lady that called in, like they're leaving after a while, so they can you know afford to go somewhere else or whatever the case may be. Are we accomplishing what we want to do with immigrants, or like we're bringing them to Newfoundland? Do we do we want them to stay in Newfoundland, or do we want to go somewhere else? Because we're saying the outports are dying. You know, we have professionals that are leaving right now. I'm sure they're not leaving because they can't afford to stay here. You know, like, like what what is happening to Newfoundland? What is the purpose here of bringing them in? I, I would like for every one of them and even more to stay here. I don't want to see this problem die like anyone else. And we all have a right to live where we want to live. But, you know, again, I'm not calling that some people look at this saying that I don't want them here because it's not far from it. My brother's married to a Philippine, hard worker, lovely lady, and you couldn't ask for any better. So this is nothing about race or I'm just trying to understand what the ultimate goal. Are we spending good money after bad by bringing people in and they're leaving us? Well, the retention numbers are up. That much I know. So that's encouraging because it's long been the problem, whether it be the cost, whether it be the weather, whether it be the ability or the cost of getting in and out of the province to visit family or friends that are in other parts of the country. I guess it depends on who you are and why you're here and what kind of job you're able to achieve, how quickly you can learn uh, English to be gainfully employed. So I don't think there's a real simple one-size-fits-all answer to your question. But ultimately, the goal, because... You know, some people are either in or all in or all out on immigration, where it's very much more a nuanced conversation because if we just look at population trends, and I know immigrants have set up shop in different parts of the province, not all just flocked into the city, is if we see the population trend go the way it is, and the number of young families who are, A, having fewer children than ever before, B, looking for maybe better opportunities elsewhere in the country or around the world, then we're just going down a path of all of a sudden the tax base required to support all the programs and services, and yes, the number of people who achieve senior citizen age. If we don't do something, then we are going to be up against it with very few options available to us. So just from where I sit, immigration is a pretty important cog in the wheel to deal with the long-term future of the province. And now uh, we also have to throw in there, is that in the federal government's approach to immigration, which they have huge numbers, they're talking about 450,000 immigrants or newcomers per year, is do we have the housing? Do we have the health care? Are we doing the right thing so far as attracting skilled immigrants on top of refugees and people uh, claiming uh, asylum and all those types of things? So there's a lot of different silos as to how you can arrive in Canada, but I don't think there's an easy answer to what's our goal because I guess our goal is to see some population stabilization here, and it's happening. The population is actually up a little bit, and that also includes people for who have moved from other parts of the country into Atlantic Canada. So I think there's, you know, there's lots of upside, but like I said to the minister, it's fine to want to have people come here. It's quite another to have the infrastructure and supports in place so that they stay here. 100%. And this is what my call is all about. Like, it's great to have a mayor, but what are we doing to keep a mayor? Because it seemed like... You know, like numbers are showing as well. Now, I, I, 
I'm not going to debate with you on this because I'm out of my league with you, but I'm trying to understand as a, a not only a Newfoundlander but as a Canadian, like, uh, is this is it working? Like, what facts do we have? Like, they're throwing their percentages, but like, if we're going to bring in 1,100 immigrants, they say we're not bringing in two percent of the Philippines. We're bringing in 1,100 immigrants. So when it comes to work, we're saying that we have now 70 uh, percent. Working now, what seventy percent of what? Like, give us numbers. You need numbers to get a percentage. Okay. So, what are we talking about? Are we talking? There's a hundred people working now, or is there twenty people out of forty-four working? No. Like, well, th- that seventy percent came from just Ukrainians alone, and okay. so twenty-seven hundred Ukrainians have come. Seventy percent are working. So that's the data or the numbers you need on that front. And I'm not looking to debate any of this stuff either. Have a conversation. Works for me. Uh, yeah. If people want to debate, I'm up for it. But yeah, no, it was seventy percent of twenty-seven hundred. Okay. So we have. Quite a few people working, and so we, you know, like, what, are, what are we saying here? Like, there's over two thousand people working, almost out of twenty seven hundred. Just immigrants alone, yeah. or just Ukrainians? Pardon me, alone. Yeah, and they're here in the province. Yep. Okay. Well, those are good numbers. Like I said, like, these are things that are not being said. We don't understand. Like I have these debates, with my these debates with my friends all the time. We're talking about it, and then, you know, it gets it goes in a different direction sometimes. But I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah, but this, this, you know, some somebody or someone has got to keep us going here. You know, I mean, and again, like we're bringing men, they're working down Oprah again, and I don't want to say them, we're bringing in immigrants in, you know, and they're working down Oprah again. I had the fortune of uh, speaking to a couple of them Saturday in the mall in Carpenter, and they're like, they're loved people. So this has nothing to do with race or, you know, I would like for people to stay here. We need more people in the, in the province. We need more, you know, revenue. We need, we need to build it up. And if the people are leaving, then, you know, I think we're just throwing money away but again i'm just trying to understand the whole thing myself for my own sanity and which is you know it's we're going in and when we bring this up you're you're, you're treading on a fine line because some people look at this call as being you know a racist call or whatever but it's, it's nothing to do with that I'm it doesn't sound like it to me robert because you know it when you hear it right it's yeah well the thing is i want this problem to survive you know i really do i want i want to make it a, a sad that the outports are leaving but if we got to bring people in from other areas to keep those airports moving, then I say bring them in. You know. And there's also thought process here that is, if you build it, they will come. Years ago, when immigration, other than coming from uh, the UK, where we have lots of people with the United Kingdom roots here, and they so they had that familiarity and people with very similar cultures and traditions and language and accents and all the rest, right. but for people from the Middle East or from Africa or wherever the case, or, or from Ukraine. Until they were able to see people that are similar to them, not only look like them, but have the same cultures and traditions and upbringing and, you know, their worldview, then it's hard to want to stay because the next pocket uh, available to you is in Montreal or is in Toronto or is in Mississauga or is in Saskatchewan as a Ukrainian or is in B.C. as uh, someone from uh, somewhere in Asia. So, you know, with more and more staying, which is very encouraging, I think that increases the likelihood that more and more will continue to, to, uh, to stay. Well, let's hope so. Let's hope they stay here in, in, in the province uh, when they when they come here. That sort of thing. And we have our own leaving and professionals leaving that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, like we need to make sure that we're investing this kind of money. That you know that the majority does stay. And you know, I mean, they have the freedom to go wherever they want. That's not what yes. I'm saying. But if we want to build this province, then like, we got to make sure that they stay here as well. So, but anyway, I, you know, sure you get other callers. Appreciate you taking my time. And like I said, I'm just calling out a complete ignorance, just trying to understand this whole thing. And uh, you know, appreciate you again taking my call. Well, I won't pretend to have all the answers or all the knowledge on that front, but it's an important conversation. It, it just really, truly is, along with everything else that we talk about here in this program. And Robert, I appreciate you making time. Thank you, sir, and keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye.
Yeah, you know, and I do understand that people are sometimes trepidatious to talk about immigration because far too often it gets derailed. Like if someone is talking about uh, security and vetting and attracting skilled trades, whether it be working in construction or working in the tech sector or people who are refugees or the runner for their very lives or all those things, because immigration is not just one thing, right? It, it's not. And if someone is being overtly racist, we all know it when we hear it. Right, but it doesn't make you a bad person to talk about security. It doesn't make you a bad person to talk about accessing uh, affordable housing and having access to a doctor or somewhere in the healthcare system. So these are all just fair conversations because, again, we all know it when we hear it. We all know it when we see it. If it's something that is steeped in dislike, distrust, or straight-up racism, you know, we don't need to derail every conversation when people ask fair questions about immigration. We all know it when we hear it, and at that point, we should be willing to call it out. But, you know, like Robert's taking a fairly fundamental stance, where do we come up with 70%? And on that one, I'm pretty sure, and if I'm wrong, someone can set me straight, as they're happy to do, that that was 70% of 2,700 Ukrainians have now found employment. And that's the good news. And yes, retention numbers are up. And yes, all the population increase that we've seen in the province is not all strictly to do with newcomers to the country. There's been a real sweep into Atlantic Canada from other parts of Canada. So, again, it's not as simple as, well, it's this group or that group and we need this or we need that because it's just a little bit of a complicated issue. And we're happy to talk about it. Uh, that or anything else. Fred's in the queue to talk about what he heard from Minister Bragg right after the newscast. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Fred, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning. Uh, a first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Uh, I had to call this morning when I heard Mr. Bragg say how easy it is for agricultural land in, uh, in Newfoundland. It doesn't seem to be. Uh, I had a... I'd, at a parcel of land now for 43 years. And last year, they uh, canceled my permit, my agriculture permit. Now, I found that for 43 years, like I said. And I pushed the topsoil off, piled it up, leveled the land because I wanted to set some grass for my animals. And they did some Google imaging. That's what I was told in Corner Brook. They did a Google imaging. I was saying that I went beyond their means of our, their rules and regulations. But all the top solvers there ready to go back, and yet they canceled the agricultural permit. So you went beyond what? You went beyond the boundaries of the land that you own? Is that what they say? No, no. Of what you're allowed to do. I uh, pushed oh. the topsoil off to level the land. And I moved some soil around. That's all I've done. And the topsoil, everything is all there, ready to go back on now. And they tell me that that's illegal. I can't do that. And this was only done by Google Imaging. So what about it is illegal? Help me understand what the actual problem is. I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't get no answers because um, I made an application to clear that land and to level it 
remove the topsoil, level it, put the topsoil back, and I wanted to grow some hay. I grew potatoes on that, not last year, because I was sick last year. Now they're telling me that I haven't used the land in a number of years, which is a crock. I use that, I use on that land every day, even now. The cabs in the permit, and I'm still paying the, the, the fee for, for, the, for the lease. I still pay them. Okay, and again, some of these things are a bit foreign to me. So if you had a couple of years where you didn't farm, whether it be you were sick or who knows what, what difference does that make? I, I can't get no answers. I, even, I wrote the minister last fall. I never heard a sound from him, but I heard from his secretary, I guess. And I called last week to try to set up a meeting with the minister. Still haven't heard of that. I got my MHA, which is Chris Tibbs, by the way. He brought it to the House of Assembly. Still no answer. Still no response. You know, at some point in the future, politicians and political parties are going to figure out that uh, not giving answers to fundamental questions is just not working for them. Even if you get the answer that you don't want to hear, it's better than nothing. No, I can't understand why after 43 years, haven't bothered nobody, all of a sudden, this Google image comes out. I even asked the, the person in Cornerbrook, do they know what the, the bumps, the humps, is on this Google imaging? They couldn't answer me. That was a top saw. Top saw piled up. Yeah, it's a little bit strange to rely on Google imaging as the the reason why you make one decision or another. So has anyone ever been out on your property to have a look at what you're doing as opposed to just a flyover? Not for me to know. Okay. They told me it was Google Imaging. Now, whether they came out when I wasn't there, I, I can't answer you. Well, yeah, because no, Google itself would have uh, supplied their own imagery that they use, whether it be Street View or otherwise. So the government just went on the Internet and had a look at your property or what they thought you were doing with your property. Well, it's beyond me, uh, Patty. It's beyond me. Uh, I've been kicking this around. We've been kicking this around now since last fall. When they, last summer, they, I guess I think it was, they came... I received a letter from them, right? And what do you do on the farm? So you were you were just trying to make preparations to for your animals. Well, what what goes on on your farm when you're up and operating in full? Uh, I uh, well, mostly now is just just my animals. I got uh, horses and uh, I got a donkey. I got some, there's a couple of goats there. And, uh, Hens and I mean, there's a granted land. The farm is granted land, right? And this was a agricultural lease 
off from it, just to the left of it. Okay. So it was, uh, I think it was uh, six or eight acres holes. I mean, I held the whole works of it at one time, uh, 26 acres. And there's a long story to get into that because <laughs> I don't want to get into that because. No problem. But this, this eight acres, I wanted to level it and put the topsoil back on it and set it into hay. Because I could have hay for the horses and that. But apparently now, uh, that kind of stuff is not agricultural anymore. I appreciate the time, Fred. It's always uh, confusing and absolutely frustrating, frustrating to know that the government talks about all this agricultural advancement, and yet people like yourself have these very specific standoffs that are just bizarre. It is. Uh, it is beyond me. Uh, I mean, I would like to get a meeting with, with the minister uh, uh, or, or some of his officials to come right out there and look at it uh, and see what I'm doing. You know, don't just take Google imaging and say one thing and mean another. Yeah, a little bit more yeah. comprehensive evaluation before you make be these big decisions, which has real-life impact in your world, right? That's right. Well, I appreciate the time as a first-timer. Want to say anything else, Fred? Uh, no, that's about it. Uh, I mean, I'd like for Mr. Bragg to uh, get all this facts straight before he makes, comes on the radio and says how easy it is to uh, get land and stuff like this. I mean, uh, 43 years I've had this personal land. I've been using this off and on. Mm-hmm. I grew potatoes on it a uh, year before last. And they're saying, I mean, parts of that land has never been touched. It's still the same as always. I appreciate your time, Fred. Stay in touch. Uh, all right, then. Thank you, Patty, very much. My pleasure. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And on that front, you know, this uh, email flew in during the 1130 newscast is why do I continue to say things like uh, hydroponics and greenhouses and stuff? Well, just as far as I can tell, we do indeed have pretty short seasons to grow in the traditional manner for certain crops in certain parts of the province. And so the thought that you could have a year-round operation and you can put them much closer to where you live because part of the issue regarding food is not just uh, how much we grow, but how close you are to getting your hands on it. So that proximity question is a big one. So if you had options beyond going to the next closest big center, whether it be into town or into Galway to go to Costco or into go to the closest Walmart or into go to the closest big grocery store, if some of the items that you pick up there were just down the road because someone had set up a hydroponic uh, system that was growing year-round, then you'd save yourself a lot of angst, right? You'd save yourself money regarding gas or whatever else you spend beyond the food when you get where you're going, whether it be a bite of lunch or something on the road. So having the access issue is deals with food insecurity and helps control some costs. So that's why I talk about hydroponics, because it's a growing industry. If you look south of the border, hydroponics is about a $9 billion industry in this country. And just think about it. We've just established the very first Canadian Hydroponics Growers Association within the last six months or thereabouts. So it's growing, <laughs> poorly chosen word. The industry itself is expanding, 
and consequently, it has a lot of upsides. We've got hydroponic uh, activity already happening here in the province at this moment in time. I just think there's big opportunities to grow beyond that because, you know, traditional will always have a place. Who's No one's saying that it's going by the wayside, whether it be uh, root crops, root vegetable crops, and or organic uh, operations, and yes, some hydroponics on top of backyard farming and homesteading and community gardens and the other areas where we produce the food we need. Because we always go back to the same 1910, right? is that we only produce 10% of what we consume and we import 90%. Where I think now some of the work that's been done by, for instance, the Food Producers Forum has painted a very clear picture that we didn't capture very well the amount of food being produced here in the province because we were only talking about what's being sold at the big retailers. So that's where that 90-10 kind of comes into play versus all the additional data that we now have on hand and numbers and data are important you know to help make decent policy decisions uh let's take our final break of the morning don't go away yeah welcome back let's go to line number two and say good morning to carrie shepherd with the nl brain injury association good morning carrie you're on the air hello there i'm calling to give everybody a shout out to come down and join us on june 3rd for our inaugural stepping together for brain injury um, it starts at 2 o'clock in Bowering Park, and you can just join us um, on Park Road inside the gated entrance there. And uh, there's pledge sheets available that we can send out, and uh, donations are welcome as well from uh, uh, cor- corporations or for personal. We're, we're welcoming it all, and we'd love to have anybody come down that uh, wants to make June the, the brain month and bring awareness to TBI and ACI. That uh, is something that uh, we need to talk about a little bit more. What's going to happen at the event before we talk a bit more about the, uh, the two you mentioned? Um, the event basically is just a walk. It's uh, we're, we're getting pledges from people. We're bringing people together, um, having conversations, and we're doing the walk around the park. Okay, that's terrific. Let's get into brain injuries a little further. You know, we talk about concussions, and in fact, the concussion is a traumatic brain injury. So it kind of sounds very innocuous and not that big a deal when you say concussion versus brain injury. But inside of brain injuries, are we capturing more than simply concussions or traumatic brain injury? Like, does it include tumors and strokes and other? Acquired brain injury, absolutely, absolutely. So any brain injury is traumatic. Um, The TBI was the kind of go-to term previously, but now we're using acquired brain injury as well, or ABI, and that is anything from birth. Um, that uh, is is caught uh, by an MRI or or that may cause any kind of brain issue, uh, stroke. Uh, there's so many different things that our lovely brain can uh, can deal with. But um, we live in in a world with people with traumatic brain injury or acquired brain injury that you necessarily may not see all of the damage that has happened. You talked about concussions. A lot of people, like you said, think it's quite innocuous, but it can be very damaging for people who, you know, work a nine-to-five job. They can maybe not do that anymore or are very sports-minded. They might not be able to do that anymore either. And it's, it's those little things that, you know, we're walking around with the whole rest of the world, but our injuries are on the inside more sometimes than the outside. I have a couple of friends that concussions or traumatic brain injury ended their hockey careers. One of them was a professional. Um, Bad. Okay. Yeah, it is. 
so we know recovery can take a long time, and it hits everybody differently based on the severity of. But I'm wondering how accurate the numbers are. I mean, like when I was a young competitive athlete, I guarantee you I had concussions, but zero were diagnosed. So we all <laughs> yeah. thought we had our bell rung, you know, and then as soon as you felt up to it, you, <laughs> got, you, you got back on the ice, which, you know, I guess to bring it to modern day, I just wonder how accurate the information would be because it has to be reported. So we're relying on doctors, I assume, to make these reports. And some of these things go undiagnosed for mm-hmm. months or months or years and years. So mm-hmm. what do we know about the accuracy of the numbers that we're talking about? We're looking at right now in Canada, uh, TBI or ABI is the number one disabler or killer of people under 40. Really? So it is actually being more, um, when you hit your head, it's a little bit more serious than it used to be back in the day. And it's, it's basically, if you're looking at brain injury, it occurs at a rate of one person is injured every three minutes. Whew, I, I had no yeah. earthly idea about the, the death numbers that you quote for Canadians under the age of 40. And it uh-huh. is, it's not just about the diagnosis and the time it takes and the uh, type of treatment required, but it has far-reaching impact into other facets of life, whether it be with your mental well-being and your mental health. I'm sure exactly. it has an impact about uh, long-term employment. I'm sure it has an impact mm-hmm. not only in healthcare but in criminal justice. Mm-hmm. What do we need to know? Yes. Um, it has an impact in everything, and, and sadly, um, in order to be able to qualify for one of the things, like, say, if you wanted to do uh, a tax credit for some kind of disability, um, a lot of brain injuries did not qualify in the past. This is the first year where on your disability tax credit, it can be an accumulative effect as opposed to having an 80% deficit in one particular area. So if you've had a brain injury and your sight is, is not as good, your, your balance is not as good, um, you might search for particular words when you're trying to have a conversation. In the past, you would not qualify for any kind of disability. Right now, luckily, it just has changed in Canada, so you can qualify. I'm, I'm kind of in that status because I had... Um, yeah, three hemorrhagic strokes, and I had brainstem surgery uh, 10 years ago for um, a rare disease called um, cavernous malformations. A lot of people don't even recognize that. Even your neurologist or some of the doctors, um, not, not to talk about our medical system because they are struggling as well as everybody mm-hmm. is, but the the knowledge of that kind of illness um, sometimes get missed. It gets missed. And here we are, Mental Health Week. Is there a re- relationship that we can draw straight lines between concussions or serious traumatic brain injuries and the eventuality of developing a mental health or mental illness? That, that's what would be, I guess diagnosable. It's difficult to say. There's there's a, a direct correlation, but often people who have injuries and and live with the deficits um, that are kind of hidden, um, you end up having to deal with depression because you can't go out as much anymore. Uh, going out in public or or being going to a concert, you can't do that so much anymore. So you end up living in a different world than you used to and you have to accept the new you 
because otherwise, if, if that acceptation doesn't happen, then definite um, mental issues are going to follow, for sure. Carrie, before we say goodbye, give us the where and the whens and the details regarding your upcoming uh, walking event. Stepping Together for Brain Injury. Brain Injury Month is all the month of June. It is Saturday, June 3rd at 2 p.m. in Bowering Park. Um, you meet on Park Road in the gated entrance there. And uh, feel free to look up the Newfoundland Brain Injury Association. And there's all kinds of links there for registration and for um, found, um, uh, fundraising letters and that kind of thing. Appreciate the time, Carrie. Thanks for this. Pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. It's Carrie Shepard with the NL Brain Injury Association. Well, bye. Sure beats a good time. Let's go to line number one. Justin Fancy, you're on the air. <laughs> How are you today, Patty? That's kind, man. You? I'm all right, man. I'm all right. you got about three minutes left of your day, by the look of it. Um, yeah, not too bad. So I Sure Beats a Good done. Time was me just rattling off the name of his uh, debut album. <laughs> you got her, buddy. You got her. i got another one coming now soon in the fall, so uh, stay tuned for that one. Um, but today I wanted to talk about something very, very important, Patty, uh, to me and my family and friends and, and the music community. Uh, we're raising money for uh, our dear friend, Leanne Kane. Uh, she just got diagnosed with, uh, it's a mouthful, just one second, uh, diffused large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we're, we're coming together in the music community, as we always do, coming together for a great friend. Um, and so a couple of weeks ago, my, uh, Greg Smith had uh, contacted me to raise money. This is the funniest part about this. He, uh, he contacted me, I, I think it was about a month ago, um, to start raising some money for for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. And Greg's doing some great things there. Uh, and then we learned, of course, Leanne's diagnosis. So, uh, you know, um, I guess, you know, unfortunate news, but, but a great way to kind of tie that all in. So we're raising money uh, for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada and Leanne King. We're, we're going to donate 50% to each um, cause, so, so to Leanne and to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. Uh, uh, we have a great lineup. Go ahead. No, I was gonna, just going to say, I know Leanne, and I saw her tw- uh, send out a picture on social media of her now shaven head and says, you know, I'm more than my hair. Of course, yeah. many people recognize her because of her beautiful red hair, but she's a lovely girl. Absolutely. She's, she's actually, um, I, I made a pact. I, I mean, we went back, we, we go all the way back to Canadian Idol um, in 2008, and uh, that's when I met her, and we stayed so, so great friends over the years um and she's actually kaylee's uh, music teacher now and of course with her with her diagnosis she's taking some time off uh and as everybody knows as a self-employed um uh musician and 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 teacher you know it's going to be hard for her financially to stay off now and uh and and get the treatment and and you know stay as healthy as she can so we're looking to raise some money there um i got myself and my band playing there uh jeremy dix todd scott we're both Canadian Idol alumni in 2008, they're going to uh, play. And her great friend and, uh, and mentor, Sandy Morris and Jenny Gear is going to join us as well. Uh, so it's going to be a great night. I'm sure we're going to have some special guests as well, and that's on May 13th at the Bella Vista. You can get your tickets on Eventbrite, and you can also uh, check out my uh, Facebook page and Instagram page at Justin Fancy Music, uh, and you'll see it all there. Knock him dead, Justin. Uh, good luck with the fundraiser, and I look forward to your next record. Thanks for this, buddy. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Justin Fancy Bye-bye. trying to raise some money for both entities, as mentioned. All right, good show. I was going to say to kick off the week, but today's Tuesday.
And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.